podcast. This is Spy Movies Part 2, continuing our decade-spanning examination of non-Bond spy movies that we started with Part 1. In Part 1, we went through the 1920s up into the 1970s. And today, we're going to be doing the 1980s to the present. And I am joined once again by Mr. Bill Scurry and Mr. John Arminio. Fellas, how you doing? Um, I'm doing great. It's uh, a thrill to be back talking about uh, more spy stuff. I'm just uh, skulking around corners, dropping uh, uh, the duct tape uh, wrapped parcels off of bridges and doing all the regular things you expect with tradecraft. I don't know if you guys have felt like you're being followed since our previous recording, but I get that sense all the time. I feel like maybe we've opened something here that we can't close back up, if you know what I mean. We have a a cat and it does tend to follow me around but that's it's a little different i guess how well do you know that cat bill oh you're right it's a dutch cat it could anything anything goes at this point i don't trust him but guys let's launch right into it uh because we're just picking up right from where we left off going into the 1980s and i've kind of tried to kind of half-assedly justify my picks for uh, our main spy movie of the decade and then our alternate spy movie of the decade by kind of examining sort of what these movies are like and how they kind of represent the era. And of course, the 80s, we're talking Reagan era, right? It's all about capitalism in the USA. I think the way the spy movies survive, just based on a lot of the ones that I watched, is that they blend in with other genres, right? They kind of become, because the Cold War isn't quite as immediate as it was in the 60s and even the 70s, I feel like what happens is that Genre movies in the 80s become such a, a big staple of Hollywood following the new Hollywood wave and the big blockbusters and the tentpole summer movies. Genre movies are what it's all about. So spy movies kind of mesh in with other films, which kind of justifies my pick of the first one, which is Eye of the Needle from 1981, directed by Richard Marquand, based on a novel by Ken Follett, who is really the American dad read spy author of his time. You know, if you ever go over to your friend's house, you know, and you look at their parents books it's either like tom clancy or ken follett i feel like or any combination of the two but i've never read any ken follett myself but I, i'm a big fan of this movie sort of the sort of the selfish reason why i picked it it's the uh, story of a german sleeper agent who's nicknamed the needle because of his method of executing with a stiletto which kind of leads to my first question is it wise for an undercover spy to have a signature way of killing people and leaving a trail i don't know but that's what he does, and he discovers a ploy by the British to fully access powers as to the location of D-Day landing using a field of uh, cardboard airplanes. He has the evidence, and he's going to get it over to Hitler and his astrologer, and his extraction is compromised. He ends up washed up on Storm Island. That's right, we're back in the Scottish Islands, just like the Spy in Black, where he pretends to be just another British fisherman so he can hide out in the home of a family until his U-boat arrives, and things get complicated when he starts a relationship with Lucy Rose, played by Kate Nelligan. This turns into a the Bridges of Madison County, sort of if Clint Eastwood were a Nazi sociopath, which is appropriate because the sociopath in question is played by his Kelly's Heroes co-star, Mr. Donald Sutherland. Bill, let's get your thoughts on Eye of the Needle. I've always been curious about this movie because, you know, for larger picture's sake, this is the thing that George Lucas noticed and that got Richard Marquand the job running, uh, Emp uh, not Empire, Return of the Jedi. And, you know, from what I read, apparently um, the ability to run a big labyrinthine, low budget um, movie 
on uh, English soil with a lot of moving pieces and a lot of set pieces, a lot of, you know, uh, A-list actors and stuff like that on time and under budget really meant a lot to Lucas, which seems ridiculous now thinking how how huge and, and serpentine Return of the Jedi was going to be. But that was his qualifications. But Mark Juan, uh, and, and the other thing I was looking for is because, you know, people wondered, well, did George Lucas ghost direct Return of the Jedi? You know, Mark Juan is one of those guys, I think he's got that like Toby Hooper impression that precedes him of like well how much is this guy the straw man director for a larger force behind him as sort of in sui generis movie monster but i mean i think this kind of proves that richard marquand even though he didn't make very many movies at the top i think he did this in jagged edge a few years later which is another pretty good movie um he's got some juice i mean he really does uh, know how to move a big this 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 looks like a bbc production writ large I mean, I think that the thing you said before, the the set piece of the gigantic ghost fleet on the ground is pretty much just scaffolding and and sheeting and whatnot designed to look like a, um, a, a, an entire air force ready to take off and, and approach Germany from the north is really impressive. I mean, there's not that many actors in it, but it's a large set piece. Uh, and I mean, I think really what this winds up being towards the end is a real claustrophobic story where it i mean appropriate for the name it focuses to a needle point on this little spit of land you said much like um the spy in black and it becomes like a pas de deux between donald sutherland and kate nelligan um you know and donald sutherland's work goes without saying i think because everyone you know if you like movies you generally like donald sutherland but kate nelligan is one of those actors who i forget has been around for a long time and had her real heyday around this I just watched the Langella Dracula recently too. And I kind of forget she was like in the conversation. She was never an A-lister, but she was one of those like stage actors who people thought, oh, she's going to turn into good performance. She can do a number of accents. She's solid. She can sell the tight scene. She could sell the far away scene. She could run really well. And she, you know, glams up in sort of mid-century um, marmish type dowdy clothing really well. She really does look like this sort of bored uh, you know, wife who's hanging out with her husband who just refuses to see the world again. You know, uh, Follett is a really interesting author to me because, yeah, John, like you said, like everybody or everybody's dad has a couple Follett spy novels on their shelf. And I've read Eye of the Needle and I really like the book, but he also wrote Pillars of the Earth which is both me and my dad's like one of our favorite novels. Like if I had to list like the best bestseller novels of the last like 50 years, it's like Pills of the Earth is probably my favorite. Tom Clancy, it, Follow It, they write the kind of spy novels that like everybody reads, but nobody's favorite book of all time is Iron the Needle. But for him to also have this like uh, immense tome about the Middle Ages in his back pocket, it's it's fascinating to me. So like, what, what is it about him as an author that's able to churn out spy books and then talk about, you know, medieval England in with such great passion. So to me, that's very interesting. The movie, Eye of the Needle is definitely, you know, Mark one's creation. And I think he was brought on to return of the Jedi because empire went so over budget and so over schedule. And I think that was because Lucas was trying to be a shadow director um, and it just got too complicated. And so they needed somebody to actually take the reins and, and direct this big budget sci-fi movie. And so they got Mark one because of how well he managed Eye of the Needle. And I, so I think it's unfair to say that he shadow shadow directed Star Wars. But um, Mark one's interesting. He made yeah. Legacy, which is a 
batshit weird horror movie from a few years before. And that kind of speaks to what I'm sort of saying about The Eye of the Needle, which is that it's a spy movie, but it's a little bit more of a horror movie. It's a little bit more of a dark thriller than yeah. the ones that we've watched up until now. I mean, the movie Dead Calm uh, even stole the scene where Kate Nelligan is forced to uh, bed the guy, even though she knows he's the villain, even though she knows he murdered her husband, she still has to, you know, pretend everything's cool to to save herself and her her son. So it has to like take him to bed again, even though she knows what's going on. Even the even the writer of the screenplay, Stanley Mann, who previously had adapted uh, the running the the Naked Runner for City J Fury and Frank Sinatra, which is a spy movie, would go on to co-write The Collector. Theater of Blood, Damien, Omen 2, and Firestart. He's more of like a horror guy at this point. So I feel like, I don't know, I can't speak to the book. Maybe you can tell us, John, but the movie definitely veers a lot more into horror territory than any of the ones that we've watched so far. Yeah, it, it has been a long time, but yeah, all the stuff on the island is very much, it, it contains that paranoia and sense of isolation and and seclusion. And the the desperation of having every avenue of escape or self-defense gradually being taken away from you. And so you're left with like nothing but your bare hands to defend yourself against, you know, this expert assassin Nazi spy. And so, yeah, I definitely think that that does translate from novel to book. And I think what's interesting about the story is how, you know, the relationship between this couple who's living on this, this Scottish Island, um, Kate Nelligan and her husband, who was um, paralyzed in a car accident, are living in this like state of stasis, really, where they can't say what they're thinking. They're pretending that they have a happy marriage, but everybody is miserable. No one is being honest with each other in the same way that a spy has to subsume their own identity in order to complete their mission. So, you know, this English wife has been sort of repressing every every emotion that she's had for the past four years in order to operate as a wife. So in a sense, she's been training as a spy for her entire marriage. And so who else better to take on a Nazi than this English housewife who, uh, especially during this time of the 20th century, were experts at hiding their emotions and pretending everything was a-okay. And I really appreciate that that element of the story you know john i thought that uh, some of the stuff that mark Kwan seemed the most interested in uh, you know even more than horror i would say like the hitchcockian thriller because like you alluded to hitch um sutherland's weapon of choice is a concealed sort of spring-loaded stiletto so when it's retracted it kind of looks like a, a metal tube it's a little nondescript almost like uh chigurh's captive boat pistol to some degree and the close-up kills, like, you know, the, the homicides that keep appearing in the movie almost seems like what Marquand is really interested in doing, that that Peeping Tom thing. And, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it looks like Peeping Tom's tripod stiletto that and, and from the Michael Powell movie. You know, that that is a guy who's building up all of the details of the, the war around the close-up homicides as... You know, Donald Sutherland isn't just tapping out Morse code. He he is he draws blood. He's a, he's a sadist. You know, he's a he's a homicidal maniac, if you want to think about it. But he's also able to um, get in the good graces of, of of Kate Nelligan's wife by putting on the performance of. He could actually be a good lover. He could be a tender man. You know, he's actually getting some kind of relief on this island. I think those 
sensations look like they're honest from Sutherland's character. It's just that he, you know, since he's a lunatic and a, and a, and a, and a, and a sleeper agent, he gets to have his cake and eat it too. All, he, all he's got to just get back to the boat to get to the submarine to get off the island. But while he's there, he's going to have some fun and, and, and let this woman have a couple of days of bliss before she goes back to uh, being, you know, a, a stymied housewife. Yeah, that's a great yeah. comparison to Pal because the mm-hmm. first half of it is basically like the Spy in Black, right? Where it's a German agent stuck on the Scottish island. And then the second half is a lot like the 49th parallel where it's, you know, will the bad guy get away? You know, will he be extracted? And how there's a little bit of sympathy for the bad guy uh, too. I mean, he he looks so miserable. Something looks so miserable in the rain when he's chasing her at the end. Like, I even though he is a horrible person, I'm just like, oh my God, this poor guy and get this... You know, the needle meets the axe and his fingers get chopped off. I mean, just everything that could go wrong for this guy ends up going wrong. And even though, you know, he's the clearly the villain and the murderer of the piece, you still feel a little bit bad for him at that point. He's also yeah. not a very good spy. I'll throw that out there. You know, he like he goes to, like so far as to criticize one of his cohorts for, you know, leaving a trail even a blind man could follow. But he himself gets caught using the radio all the time. He yeah. sleeps in late, crashes his boat in a storm. He talks too quickly and gives away that he murdered the woman's husband. He's not a very, the needle is, does not live up to his reputation, in my opinion. It's just, it's like he's been there for a while doing cold, competent work. It's only at the very end that, you know, he's he's got the fire under his ass to get the hell out of there, you know? Well, even at the beginning when uh, his, what, his maid in the house finds him on the radio, it's like, come on, man, she should know better than that. Do you want to know a my, woman, my favorite who knocks on your door and brings in tea? You, you know you don't hear her coming in. Come on, needle. My favorite my favorite detail of this movie is the thing that happens towards the very end. Kate Nelligan, she she's in a position where there's a make or break moment where he's broadcasting to the submarine the coordinates, I think it is, and the radio is hooked up, and she has no choice but to cut the circuit to the house and essentially kill the power, and she does so. And a little bit of body horror, I thought, or or something close to the mortification of the flesh. She has no choice but to put her bare fingers in the light socket, completing the circuit. And she cuts the power for the whole house by experiencing a severe electrical burn. And I love that idea of the sacrifice, the mortified flesh, that there's this thing, this 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 object in front of her requires this real moment of like revulsion and getting over the fact that you need to wound yourself to give up a part of yourself to uh, for the greater good. And I love the fact that like for the rest of the movie, her hand is black and charred. They don't clean it up. She, it almost looks like she can't feel her damn hand because it took like a big electrical shock through it. And whether it's Nicholson slash nose in Chinatown or, you know, these these idea that sometimes the hero gets mortified, the flesh is marred and maimed along the way towards doing the right thing. You know, it's like you don't just get a happy ending. You get something to, you know, your body has to have a marker to let you know that things really got fucked up and you're not going to be the same again after all this stuff is over. And I thought they used that brilliantly in the way that she has to like pick up her son or pick up a gun and try and reload it with like one and a half hands. And and so for to watch the needle sort of be able to navigate using one hand uh, much more efficiently because he's used to, you know, all that murder and stuff than she is, I thought, you know, added to her desperation. Yeah, I love that stuff. It becomes Sally running from Leatherface at the end of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where when I said he's sympathetic, I mean the way that Leatherface is sympathetic, you know, where he seems all frustrated and like 
running and chasing people and falling down and cutting himself with his chainsaw, that level of like sympathy. But it's really her that we're, you know, obviously engaging with. And like you said, Bill, she's, uh, she's, she's wonderful in this part. You know, she really sells it. She, the desperation is definitely there. I also love uh, the husband who, you know, has, is confined to a wheelchair, seems just to completely shut out life entirely. You know, he's obviously disappointed that, his war career was cut short that he now feels completely useless and he is completely, you know, cut off any intimacy from her, which is what, you know, allows Sutherland obviously to, to creep in and, you know, get the advantage of her. And he presents such a believable case of complete hopelessness that when he actually springs forth and tries to stop the needle, it's awesome. That's a great scene. It reminds me of uh, one of my very favorite scenes, the end of the hit where Terrence Stamp, the entire movie has said, you know, he's willing to he's willing to die. He has no compunction about being, you know, murdered by John Hurt. And then the very last second he decides he wants to live and he like becomes desperate, doesn't want to die. That's what it reminds me of, though he actually tries to and almost succeeds in beating the needle uh, off that off that cliff. That's a ten terrific scene. You've never had an amputee go that hard before. Yeah, I yeah. I would thought like you just push the fucker and he's dead. It's like, no, he's he hung in that fight for a little while. He was trying to ground and pound, and it's like he he nearly got the better of him before he was tossed off the edge. He did. It's terrific. I really like this movie. I think it's a really good film. Uh I actually end up listening to uh, a podcast that was specifically about spy movies when they talked about this movie. It was a little disappointing. It turned out to be more of like a movie goof type episode. And three of the four people didn't like it at all. Like they really had only negative things to say about Sutherland's accent and, you know, this and that. I, I was like, I don't know what, what people are going to think about this movie. So it makes me happy that you guys are fans of this film because I think it's really good. Yeah, I, I do like it, but I do have to say the the dubbing is extremely distracting in this movie. Sure. I, don't, I don't think there's any onset dialogue recorded in the entire film. Um, when Sutherland speaks in German, I think it's another actor, which is distracting. And um, anytime the kid talks, it's it's like Lucio Fulci level <laughs> um, bad. Which speaks uh, again to its horror sort of. You know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I didn't think we were to be getting a Giovanni Fretzer reference. Nice, yeah. nicely done. So there's a lot of just breaking of the verisimilitude in the movie. And I, I don't have any problem with Sutherland's like fake british accent just the how everything is just they're just one extra level of separation because of how obvious the the post-production dubbing is so that that was d disappointing that would be my biggest complaint as well but it's a minor complaint i think compared to the whole it's a good movie for the alternative uh alternative pick i went with riley ace of spies which is a not a film but a mini series from 1983 which it was 12 episodes long uh, directed by Martin Campbell and Jim Goddard, encapsulates 25 years in the life of Russian-born spy Sidney Riley, who is something of a mythical, real-life secret agent. He's played by the great Sam Neill. Uh, in real life, Riley was basically he's an employee of the British. Again, was considered a legendary espionage agent. We follow him through the beginning of the Russo-Japanese War in 1904, the fight of the Darcy Oil Concession in Persia, the left socialist revolution in Russia, and uh, the new counterintelligence efforts in Moscow following the First World War, again, encapsulating about 25 years of history. I obviously love Sam Neill, but reading about the real-life guy in this beautiful paperback with Sam Neill's beautiful face on the cover, it's really interesting how they really stuck to history, and this guy is just a fascinating character. 
but the, the miniseries does not shy away from the fact that he is a bastard. That's the thing I love about it. I put on Twitter once that this series is basically James Bond if he was a complete asshole. And Sam Neill actually responded to it saying, well, that's one way to put it. Uh, but I absolutely love this series. I'm going to focus actually on one episode that in particular that I think really kind of uh, symbolizes everything why that's good about it. It's the third episode. It's called The Visiting Fireman. And the setup of that episode is that the British government are recruiting a bunch of inexperienced young men to be international spies. So none of them are prepared for it. And they're being sent, you know, all around the world, not knowing what what to do. And one in particular gets sent to Hamburg to secure plans for a new naval gun that the G Germans are developing. And once they realize he's losing it, you know, he's, he's not going to be able to, to hold on to it, they send in Riley to extract him, Riley being like a pro who can actually go in there and do the job. And instead, Riley doesn't reveal himself as a fellow agent. He steals the plans himself and takes off. Leaves complete chaos in his wake, completely unconcerned about the consequences for others. This poor young guy he leaves behind ends up killing himself. It's just, it's amazing to see, you know, this guy come in and know what he's doing and be competent and also completely unsympathetic to anyone, even on his own side. That's just sort of Riley in a nutshell. And Sam Neill plays this character over these 12 episodes with that exact kind of level of sleazy charm that is just kind of makes the series great. Riley's the fucking worst. Like, <laughs> he really out is. of all the spies we've encountered, he might be the worst human being. But maybe the best all spy. <laughs> yeah. Um, because not only does he leave the British agent that he was sent in there to save to die, he sells the plans of the gun to a military industrialist, the, the, the Zurov character. So he's not James Bond. He's the villain's henchman. <laughs> Because Zurov is the closest thing we have to a Bond villain in this series. And so Riley is doing his dirty work for him. So Riley is the guy that like James Bond would kill at the end of the the, the James Bond movie. <laughs> and, uh, you know, like in, in the second episode, he um, he knows the Japanese are attacking this uh, city in Manchuria. And he make and he makes it a point to make sure nobody in the city knows about it. So that the, this town gets annihilated, which puts Russia and Japan on a collision course for war, which then secures more British influence in Manchuria because now they are able to occupy the power vacuum. Um, so not only that, he is also able to secure timber and coal supplies so he can become a war profiteer <laughs> in the ensuing conflict. He he does colonialism in this series. Um it, <sighs> I just hated him too much. <laughs> to, to continue. And I think a lot of it is um, might be just personal taste because growing up, I watched so much of the Jeremy Brett's Sherlock Holmes series, which was made around this time. And so it has this that like, you know, early 80s BBC production patina about it. And so I immediately had this nostalgic reaction to it the way that I did watching Sherlock Holmes. But then the the actual stories make me want to strangle this guy. So even so it's, it's a, bit, a little bit of a cognitive dissonance going on <laughs> watching this horrible guy get away with murder profiteering. But Sam Neill is such a rake. Yeah. I mean, I only was able to see the first episode, which is on daily motion. This is really hard to get a hold of, especially more than just a couple episodes from non-traditional sites. 
But um, I mean, th- he, there's never a single frame of that pilot episode where he has a single hair out of place. He is smooth. He never loses his calm. And even when he hustles that that preacher or the I guess it's a, an, a, a vicar's wife that he's trying to essentially use to get out of the country. He needs the subterfuge of her coming to his room so that they won't be, um, I think they're what Uzbek guards, you know, won't go into the marriage chamber if they see two people. It's a, a sort of modesty thing. And he's like, I will wait for you when you get back. And he actually does. I didn't think for a single second that he would be there to catch her in England because she's going to be a woman of, of fallen moral and, and disgrace if she spends the night with, uh, with Riley. But I mean, it's the power of Sam Neill, who is a chameleon up and down. He could pretty much play whatever role you want. But I mean, he's so lithe. He's so handsome. And when he's in that dinner jacket, I mean, you know, woe betide he who doesn't fall under the spells of like the fine cultured English gentleman, no matter what his aims might actually be. Yeah, Sam Neill was actually up for the role of Bond around, the, I think I want to say the Octopussy era, maybe right before Tim Dalton. And, you know, he has a screen test and everything. I would, as a huge Sam Neill fan, I would say totally wrong for Bond. Doesn't work, but perfect for Riley. And again, like I said, when he dons that dinner jacket and he puts on the charm, he is Bond level smooth and suave. And, but the, but the, but the series, just like the book is honest about how horrible he is, how horrible Bond probably would be in real life. So I really enjoy that aspect of it. I love there's a scene, I can't remember what episode it is, but where um, Zaharoff basically has sent an agent to murder uh, a woman, a prostitute who he is, uh, who he's close to, who Riley is close to. No, no, no. He he sends an agent to, to just to get information from her, and he ends up killing her, uh, not not uh, not intentionally. But um, Riley wants to know who did it. He's doing these uh, deals with Zaharoff and. Uh, played by Leo McKern very well, very oily performance by Leo McKern. It basically comes down to like, does he want to like pick Riley over, you know, does he want to like bend for Riley? Is it worth it? Like, is Riley going to pay off in the future? And they end up like in this tomb together where someone is digging a grave and the implication is like, you know, he's threatening Riley. But of course it turns out the guy digging the grave is the one who murdered the woman and he shoots him and leaves him in the grave. And is like, okay, now we're going to do business. This is like, and you see it coming a million miles away. But even so, it's just such a good scene. And these two actors are so fantastic. And it's great. And of course, Martin Campbell himself would go on to do two fantastic Bond movies in his time and brings like obviously a lot of great excitement and fun to this series, uh, which is, you know, again, even with the rake, even with a completely awful guy, is is just a great fun series. And, uh, it's a, and, and historically, very interesting to kind of understand like this first half of the 20th century and how it kind of developed through all these backhanded deals and these arms dealings and people who were profiteering off of misery and, you know, running around and leaving chaos in their wake. It's a very honest depiction of that era, which is why I really, really dig this series. You know, there's, there's like a sense of when you watch a BBC show like this or uh, movies that were shot in Pinewood around the, the, the bend of the seventies into the eighties, the casts that they get for these things now to us, are legendary. I mean, that first episode alone, our our Welsh god and saver John Rhys Davies was in it. You know, when he was just merely a superstar rather than the budding superstar, and the vicar was played by Sebastian Shaw, who of course was at Spy in Black and who's you know and a staple in English film. But it's like what an embarrassment of riches these guys had. Especially, for, I think it's a special period of time 
in English televisual cinematic history where they just had this clutch of actors hanging around, especially a lot of American expats like John Ratzenberger and Bill Hootkins and guys like that. And Bruce Bowa, the Canadian actor, like they, they, when you see these people come out and make these movies like Ragtime, which is full of a lot of the same actors who showed up in Superman and Empire Strikes Back. It's, it's like that magic of acting. I love seeing this repertory stock company who hung around English um, performances for the longest time. And that's why, you know, like watching a bunch of episodes of, um, you know, Tinker Taylor with Alec, uh, Alec Guinness. It's just like, oh, we're really in the throes of it now. I just love seeing what the English had for anything that they were going to make on TV or in film. They just had like a murderer's row of actors available to them at any point in time. Yeah, episode Tom three Bell. has a young um, Bill Nighy as the desperate, doomed spy. Yeah. Yeah. Alfred Molina, Tom Bell, uh, David Sushit, who would go on to play Perot. And oh, unfortunately, he's in a very unfortunate yellow face, which is like, mm. okay, this is the 80s, guys. Maybe Fritz Lang could get away with it in the 20s. but And it is interesting how... Out of all the spy movies and spy series that we've watched, this is the one that most blatantly doesn't care about finding an excuse for you to root for the protagonist. So all these other spy movies, the the somebody's like being forced into spy work or being manipulated by somebody else or like, like you know, trying to, to do the right thing despite of their circumstances. This one is just like, no, this guy is just a spy doing the dirty work for his government or for himself and and so in that way i i admire it but i i just i just i just hate him i hate him <laughs> he's hateable although you yeah. also have to admit that the one thing he's not is a hypocrite which you know all of his superiors yeah. who you know always say we don't do we don't employ spies you know we we had nothing to do <laughs> with that and everything just to the point of ridiculousness it's like he is you know his cynicism is you know something you can relate to at least mm. you know that he is uh, a lot like James Mason, you know, in Five Fingers, where he is playing the system against itself because he understands it so well and knows that it's just a big load of shit. And he's able to get away with what he gets away with. So what a rake that Riley gets his comeuppance, though. Spoiler alert. Um, I made you guys watch another movie because another genre that I think spy movies blended with in this time is the comedy, right? There's almost like a swishbuckler mentality of, how do we keep the spy, this kind of antiquated spy genre alive? Let's team it with comedy and act like we're, you know, all in on the joke. So in the 80s, we get a slew of these kind of movies. We get Top Secret, Trenchcoat, The Experts, Condor Man. Even our boy Donald Sutherland was in 1987's The Trouble with Spies with Ned Beatty and Ruth Gordon playing a Clouseau-esque spy, clueless spy named Appleton Porter. So the movie, I thought we had to watch one of these comedies and talk about it. And it seemed like well, Chris Funderbury basically told me he would not listen to the episode unless we talked about Jeff Canoe's Gotcha from 1985. Gotcha is the story of Jonathan Moore, UCLA's premier player of Gotcha, an assassin game played on campus. He gets the chance to tour Europe with his roommate Manolo. They start in Paris, and there he meets a Czechoslovakian woman named Sasha Benicek, played by Linda Fiorentino, who deflowers him and then recruits him for a trip to East Berlin, where she's been tasked to pick up a MacGuffin of some kind. I don't even think we ever find out what it is. Uh, in the same kind of a location, the Checkpoint Charlie that we had in Spy Who Came In From The Cold with a, a much lighter kind of tone for the most part. That's a movie that kind of does kind of go back and forth in its tone a little bit from comedy to like a straight up spy movie. 
I do think it really dips. So in the second half, Linda Fiorentina sort of disappears uh, from the movie, and and the chemistry that she and Anthony Edwards have is is very cute in, in a way that you know you know as a viewer that he's being duped, and I think it's interesting to watch this incredibly naive kid be wrapped up in you know the Cold War, um, but when the spy who seduces him leaves the playing field. I think that tension uh, disappears from the movie, both the romantic tension and, and the comedic tension. And so unfortunately the momentum really suffers, I think in the second half. And, and, you know, I think any 1980s comedy of this kind, there's going to be some jokes that, that don't age well or, or what have you. So, you know, whatever. But I, I, I think when the energy dips like that, the, those moments just stick out more i i had a different uh, reaction you know i somehow i missed this even though i was 10 and 85 when this came out and this was a cable mainstay for sure uh but i actually went up i i didn't think i was gonna like it nearly as much as i did and and it was the delight uh owing to a couple of things i have become a real big fan of tony edwards especially at this point in his career he is such a engaging, affable lead, and um, he puts in really solid performances until he gets to the dour part of his career around ER, I guess that's mid to late 90s, where he's just pretty much paid to be a very angry man, which he, he nails that in ER, but I think, like him in Miracle Mile, man, that is a hell of a movie, and he, he turns in a hell of a performance in that movie. And like you said, John, this is a fusion of you know, some real Cold War shit running around the same streets that look like they could have been in a possession. You know, it's it's a really drab Germany they shot this thing in, uh, right in the heat of the Cold War. I mean, it wasn't Berlin. I forget which city they shot it in. But you can't get any more dispossessed and gray and dour than what this Germany looks like, especially in comparison with the, the sunny SoCal campus that he's paintballing people on in the beginning. And the weirdest thing about this is that this was directed by Jeff Canu, who's the director of Revenge of the Nerds. This is his blank check movie after Revenge of the Nerds, which is a world beater. He made a billion dollars and they must have said, what do you want to do? He's like, well, I'm going to fuse everything together. We're going to have a screwball comedy. Um, ironically, not as many boobs as there was in um, Revenge of the Nerds, but we'll work on that in future Jeff Canu movies. But, um, uh, you know, Tony Edwards does a really good job as this wide-eyed naif. He seems capable. He's always in over his head, but he, they never get the best of him. And that's why I just kind of believe that he either blunders through or manages to wiggle out of tight squeezes more often than he should. But that's kind of what's cool. The, the incredulity of him being able to do that makes this a movie. That's one of the, the things about it. And and this is, for me, the Alpha and the Omega is fucking Linda Fiorentino, which it's like, I want all the Linda Fiorentino you got. I'll take every drop of it. There isn't nearly enough of her. They chased her out of movies around 2009, 2010. She hasn't done anything since then. Her career was hijacked by um, uh, Weinstein's, I think. But it's like the bits and pieces we got of her. She is tight and intense and lithe and wiry and crisp and brutal in every single movie. You know, whether she's doing that bit in... Um, after Hours or even for Kevin Smith and Dogma or hell, even she makes the first Men in Black movie watchable. But I mean, you know, Last Seduction, Vision Quest, it's like she's got a moment and she is like she's like, you know, incisive, like a blade. 
And I, I just think she's so charismatic at the beginning. I mean, spoiler alert, she's playing a Czechoslovakian, but it turns out that she's actually an American affecting an accent. Spoiler in a movie that's 35 years old. But um, I was thinking for a minute, why didn't they hire Nastasia Kinski if they wanted an actor who had a real accent? It's like, ah, oh, fuck that shit. It's like, I want Linda Fiorentino, even if she's doing an accent. That's just how compelling she is. We never knew how good we had it with her. And I thought she was all the knowledge and wisdom and sort of like... Uh, uh, she was aware of how of how tough and how difficult the game that they're in is as much as Anthony uh, Edwards was not. And that's why I think they made a good pair. And she's sexy as hell. It's exactly what you want in a movie like this. It's funny, Bill, speaking of Natasha Kinski, uh, I think if you were going to remake Cat People around this time, uh, Linda Fiorentino wouldn't be a bad choice. Certainly she's an absolute predator in this in this film and you know i i do agree i think both leads are great you really feel anthony edwards's desperation you're on his side the whole time he's a bit of a, a doofus you know from a, a rich background who doesn't really you know know how how good he has it. Uh, so, alex, so, alex rocco is so good at his clue yeah. rich dad that's a great yeah. that's a great turn yeah 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 i i do like the dynamic between him and his parents um, the, all the locations are are great. Uh, you really feel the the desperation of him being lost, you know, on the other side of the wall. Um, but then, you know, um, if a comedy doesn't make me laugh, I, I don't know how successful it is. So it's it's not a bad movie. Well, I appreciate both of your uh, takeaways from this, actually, kind of combine them together here to, for the full appreciation. And, and John, I you know totally get the eh kind of reaction like gotcha is a movie that i get excited about but when someone's reaction is and eh, didn't really enjoy it. it's like that's okay i get it i get it <laughs> i get it immediately kind of have that reaction but i love that it's you know again this virgin this you know naive guy going into the situation where that he doesn't know about when all he knows is the fun aspect of spying you know sort of what we talked about at like the top of this episode part one where we say everyone thinks of spying as you know all seduction and fun and intrigue and, you know, running around and shooting people with paint guns, the kind of thing. And when he finds out what it's really about, it's a real wake-up call to him. It's like a, his initiation into the real world, in this case, the real world being that gray East Berlin and uh, these people who are deceptive and are just using him. And, uh, you know, what better teacher than <laughs> Linda Fiorentino, who kind of funnily has this pretty good accent or at least a very sexy accent where like when you find you find out that she's just been faking it the whole time it's like oh because i was with it <laughs> this is one of those accents i would have totally you know given or given you know not not complained about at all but it does turn out that it's fake all along no matter what her voice sounded like if she makes eye contact with you you'll believe whatever she's saying <laughs> yes. she could she could have played uh the garba role in ninochka you know like there's just like she's got a re she could have been a rita hayworth there's just a lot of different avenues that they could have taken her career down yeah it's you know i know kevin smith is a guy who tells it like it is and everything like that but i was really disappointed on the dogma commentary where he just drags her across the coals and talks about her being difficult it's like guy come on this is not a professional well he was he was harvey's guy the thing is he was gonna harvey i'm sure they must have kathy clatched together and they just must have talked shit about her behind her back and because he was like the student and and weinstein was like the the docent i think he was gonna fall in line with that oh yeah that's the popular it was really cool to make fun of sean young around 1990 for the same reasons it was all based on bullshit it was just all anti-feminist horse fucking nonsense but you know that's what we're left with now and she's just not she's just not around anymore to play with 
Yeah, it's a real, it's a real shame. It's a real shame because she really was terrific. She's the best part of your movie, Kevin Smith. So you fuckhead. Anyway, moving on from that. Thank you guys for watching this movie. I mean, I again, it's interesting to me that like this feels like I, I mean, obviously it's the most '80s movie of the ones we watched. I think un, unquestionably, it's uh, going to have that Chekhov dictum that you know, if you show a tranquilizer gun in the first act. Then some unsuspecting woman has to get shot in the ass by it in the last shot if it's an <laughs> 80s movie. An unfortunate way to wrap things up, I think. They didn't need that. But I am a big fan of Jeff Canoe, and uh, and I, I don't know. This this movie feels like an important one to talk about, so thank you guys for indulging me in that. I appreciate it. Vec plays here, Mona Me. <laughs> there are some other 80s movies that we can tackle real quick, just kind of on uh, one-offs. Uh, there's no Way Out, which I think we should bring up just because it's uh, sort of a reworking of the big clock, which uh, we talked about a little bit in the first episode. Uh, this one with Kevin Costner and Gene Hackman. And I, and when I say I want to talk about it briefly because I saw it for the first time. I did not enjoy it at all. I thought it was terrible. Didn't like it. I uh, I thought it was, you know, one big chase scene in the Pentagon. You know, I don't know. I didn't connect with any of the characters and had that kind of... Uh, uh, Arminio reaction to it where it's like once Sean Young's out of the movie I didn't care about anything I, Gene Hackman I thought was underused Kevin Costner I didn't care about and the final twist was like so hammy that it was just like come on get get out of my face with this bill by your reaction I'm guessing you don't agree you know our our mutual friend Matthias Van Der Roos got me to finally watch this and you know I mean I'm not a, like I don't love everything Donald's Roger Donaldson the director uh Australian guy I believe or New Zealander I forget uh but he made The Bounty which is one of my favorite movies of all time oh, love and that. there's something yeah The Bounty's great but he did something in this movie um I don't know I think some of the things you're mentioning is demerits like I kind of think his strengths um Kevin Costner is a very bland affectless actor and he really wasn't putting any spin on the ball however he kind of was just paid to be a handsome himbo in this one. And it really sets up the spin at the end where it turns out he's Yuri the spy. Because I honestly did not see that coming. Wasn't even thinking for a single second that he could be that the heavy playing in the shadows. But, you know, the whole idea of this, this you know, endless windowless bunker in the Pentagon where, you know, where the hell is the door to this place? You know, you can just run around from storage <laughs> closet to, to kitchen, hide in any number of places you couldn't find anybody it really gave a sense of like um terry gilliam type endless concrete hallways where it's just like what happens in this place where is everybody what are they doing and it's just so easy to get stuck in the in the data but as uh, sean young i'm a big fan of sean young i thought she was super sexy i remember the splash this received in 87 i mean mostly for the sex scene in the limousine but it was really hot you know, and Kevin Costner almost like shows a little neck when he walks around with his unzipped pants. You kind of see his his nature trail going all the way down. This was a sexy, a sexy movie for 87. The kind of thing that put some spice uh, in film. And it held up. You My know, one it positive held up. takeaway was that I now yeah. know what Hot Shots Pardue was parodying when they're in the back of the <laughs> Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I... Um, George Zunza, you know, there's just the guys along the, the margins. Fred Dalton Thompson was in this one, Marshall Bell. It, it has all these little bits and pieces. It's really soapy. I mean, it's really melodramatic. And it, it, it worked. Roger Donaldson, it's a different movie than The Bounty, but I think it does a lot of things almost as well. I just sort of enjoyed how circuitous it felt and the the, the tightening noose only to figure out that's like, oh, it really is this guy. Yuri is this, is it a straw man? Is it a phantom? Is it is it a name like Carla, you know, that they're looking for in, in Tinker Taylor? And it's like, no, it's a real dude. And he's actually hanging around and it's going to be a real road pole by the end of the movie. 
Another movie is Firefox, Clint Eastwood's Spy in the Sky movie. John, what are your thoughts on that one? I am a fan of this one. It's not a perfect movie uh, by any means, but I think it it is a fun ride. I think uh, Bill um, compared it to sort of a, a live action G.I. Joe, if they did that in the 1980s. And I, I think <laughs> that that does nail it. But I think it's like, all right, what if John the Carre wrote a G.I. Joe story? Because there's several steps along Clint Eastwood's route as a spy where um, he sees his contacts murder somebody in cold blood. Uh, there's some betrayals and, or some of his contacts have to sacrifice themselves to get him to their destination. So there is no happy ending for any of these characters. There's a lot of doom along the way to basically do the right thing, I guess, to, to, to steal a plane. Um, and we understand how important that is for, you know, international politicking. Um, but it doesn't help when, you know, the guy who's driving your car is doing this because his Jewish wife was arrested 10 years ago and he doesn't know if she's alive or dead. And he knows he's probably going to die, too. So it's like, yay, I guess. And then you also feel for Clint Eastwood's pilot character who doesn't kill the pilot he's hired to replace because he says, oh, hell, you haven't done anything. And, you know, we're introduced to him going through a PTSD flashback where he's not reliving the torture he's, he'd experienced during Vietnam. What's triggering his own internal horror is watching children, Vietnamese children being firebombed by Americans. It was and like so a, Mili, thought, a Mili incident he saw. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and so he's somebody who's immediately disgusted with the way America operates as a war power. And I thought that was a really interesting way to introduce this character who's going to be very reluctant going in this because we're he's hiding in the wilderness, you know, purposefully making himself hard to find so the military doesn't contact him for missions like this. So I just think it's a pretty fascinating protagonist for Clint Eastwood to tackle for one of his directorial efforts. Yeah, uh, you know, I think the G.I. Joe thing that John said, that was, to quote myself, that was what I walked away uh, from this with. I love the Clint Eastwood, uh, a movie like this, a movie like the Iger Sanction. You know, he was dipping in and out of a couple of different styles uh, before he got to something more re reflective and somber to the end of the, of the late 80s. But this is... You know, there's there's really little fat on the bone. This is all just sinew and muscle and gristle and manly stuff. But yeah, you know, the idea of him having to go through all these different, um, get to Moscow, run out of the train station, run by the side of the Volga, get from one place to the next. And, and it all looks really precarious until he finally gets to the aircraft hangar. Um, I love the fact that this movie has so many pieces of Dune, you know, just like a year or two before they start shooting in Mexico City. It's like he took some of the Dune apparatus with him. Uh, Crawl is that in that same respect. Crawl has a lot of Dune pieces they took with him. Anything that makes me think of Dune 84, I love it. It's it's all great, all great heritage and great pieces there. And I think this movie has an incredible performance by Michael Clark, who is that is that his name? The guy from uh, Clockwork Orange. He plays one of the Droogs. Warren Clark, sorry, Warren Clark. He is the guy, he just, he's got no humanity left. He's all flint. He's just talking about his wife having been killed because she was Jewish and he's got no love of the Russians. And every single line out of his mouth is a flinty, flinty line reading. Um, just, not, it's it's gray and bitter, but there's still a hard work ethic to it. It's like the guy wasn't going to give up until you literally chop his hands off so he can't crawl across the ground on his fingertips. Um 
And, you know, I love the production design of this movie. The Russians inside their, you know, cavernous sort of black lit uh, space that we just, we assume the Russians, their strategy room was this very, uh, uh, you know, intimidating, awe-inspiring mission center with LED screens and whatnot. And and these guys running back and forth between uh, intelligence stations, completely being outfoxed by Mitch Gant. I mean, it's like the ideal G.I. Joe movie, the ideal Cold War movie. It elevates these little bits and pieces beyond the pulpy. And it makes them just a little more sturdy. Again, it's like the Clint of the Iger sanction knew how to do something like that. I I really do love the production design, Bill, you, you, uh, like you pointed out. But there's one thing that I that annoys me about this movie and, and the way it looks is that the, the plane he's hired to steal is clearly inspired by the SR-71 Blackbird, which is one of the most just beautiful pieces of aeronautical engineering or engineering period that that I've, that I've ever seen or that the 20th century ever produced. And so what they do with the SR-71 is like put blocks around it and make it uglier. Uh, so they, they do too much work and we're worse for it. Uh, but that's that's the one piece of, of production design that I, I think does not work in this movie. All right, last movie from the 80s we should talk about, because at least two of us I know are huge Sam Peckinpah fans. We would be loath not to mention his final film, The Osterman Weekend from 1983, based on a book by Robert Ludlum, who seems like he should be more a part of this uh, kind of conversation, but this is the one we're going to be discussing. Um, Ludlum, of course, most famous for the Rhineman Exchange, I think is his most famous book. Am I wrong about that? What is this movie about? This is a story that involves four college buddies turned adult friends. Three of them are supposedly spies working for a Soviet network known as Omega. They share a weekend at the home of the one and only John Tanner. So right off, it's the Tanner weekend, not the Osterman weekend. Osterman is the character played by Craig T. Nelson. I'm already confused. But rather than assassinate the suspected spies, the CIA agent Facet, played by John Hurt, wants Tanner to try and turn on his three friends over the course of the weekend. Lo and behold, there are twists and turns and plans within plans and vengeance and whatnot. And it really becomes quite the clusterfuck of a movie. I'm just going to pitch it right over to Bill and uh, and ask you what you think of the Osterman weekend. Uh, you know, this movie is the whole is better than the sum of its parts. Um, I honestly didn't know what the fuck Peckinpah was thinking from moment to moment. The some scenes... The tone varies wildly between scenes. There's very little connective tissue. I get that the guy was just uh, near death. I mean, he could barely get out of bed. Apparently, he was on his back for a lot of this. Made production really hard. I think he rewrote pages. And of course, whatever edit we see, depending if you get the director's cut or the, or the theatrical cut, it's really hard to say who is making the decisions. There were some moments that were truly peck and pie in, if that's, a, if that's an adjective. In the, the very beginning of the version I have, I think it's the director's cut. You're watching this closed circuit footage of John uh, John Hurt get it on with his beautiful wife, and it's done in this sort of um, you're you're looking at a CRT screen that has this wavy effect. It's almost like the artifaction of something that has like a poor refresh rate, and it's it's hypnotic in the way the screen is dancing. It's it's sort of like a, it's waving back and forth in a sign pattern. But you're watching the sex scene go on and on and on and on as the credits roll in the beginning. And it's like, all right, this is a very strange way to get into it, but it's like, okay, I'm going to go where it takes me because this is not where you expect a movie called the Osman weekend to start. What's happening. Who's this woman? I don't know any of this stuff, but towards the end, um, 
there's a sequence around the pool of Craig of uh, Rutger Hauer's house where Rutger Hauer and Craig T. Nelson get in the swimming pool, hide out underwater. As the top of the surface of the water is uh, completely immolated by you know gas, a gas slick on top that's lit a flame, and there's men with automatic weapons surrounding the pool, shooting into the into the water, and it's done with slow mo. It's done with you know very. Um, you know, the look at the muzzle flash on these suppressed firearms. It's pure peck and paw, pure peck and paw. So much slow mo of watching the bullets zip through the water and see that like conical trail behind them, a cavitation. And, you know, the tension you have of like, well, the slow mo is making it seem like they're holding their breath longer than they are, but they're still holding their breath for a long time. So it's like, what's going to get them? Is it drowning? Is it the petrol in the water? Is it the guys unloading these fucking suppressed uh, Uzis or Ingrams on top of the water? But it's it's just done balletically. And nothing else in the movie holds up to that scene in terms of just the pure cinematic power of what Peckinpah does. The rest of it falls apart. Like you're watching something on CBS in 1983. It's almost like weirdly dramatic with the housewives ha having topless gambling in the pool while the one is completely frosted on coke and gets smacked by Meg, Meg Foster, who actually was incredible in this movie. She's just all hard angles and ice cold. Um, and these are some of my favorite actors, even even Craig T. Nelson's weird, bushy, fake glued on uh, Edith Head mustache that he was wearing for some reason by choice. So uh, the pieces excel over the entire thing. It doesn't, I mean, the, the whole thing is better than the pieces, I should say. And I just don't know what was going on other than the fact that maybe an artifact to what the last days of Peck and Paul must have been like. Somebody says about Nelson's mustache, it makes me want to curl up in it, right? I can't remember who has that. <laughs> <laughs> I have to agree with Bill. There are just so many, you know, strained tonal choices. Like there's this whole comedic scene where John Hurt is on tv pretending to be a newscaster because such a because Richard howard scene. just can't turn off the tv and so he can't, like it, it and so it's just incredibly pained like comedic bit that doesn't pay off at all um if he has so much spy tech that he can take over somebody's tv why can't he turn it off i don't know it, that doesn't make any sense burt lancaster is in this plane like somebody from the movie Seven Days in May, um, survived the coup attempt in that film and became director of the CIA, just an absolute bastard, um, but is also like a complete putz who gets, you know, basically outmaneuvered by a, a newscaster. Yeah, so I wish the movie could live up to the balletic savagery intention of the pool scene at the end, but especially for a director like Peck and Paw, it's an oddity for sure in the director's uh, filmography so i think it's worth checking out but yeah i i don't think it holds together very disappointing with this cast especially it almost feels yeah. like walter hill improved upon this concept of like having a cool macho cast when he made extreme prejudice a few years later and was was a very very peck and paw-esque type movie they I, obviously there was studio interference here and I'm sure, you know, that has something to do with it, but it also just feels like the material was not something Peck and Paul had any, had any great hold of at any point. So it becomes this weird, hypnotic, strange, almost impenetrable plot that you have to plot through. And I think a lot of spy movies, you know, kind of suffer from that. A lot of mediocre spy movies. And I, I think you guys nailed it. I think, you know, that pool scene is, you know, very Peck and Paul esque you're like, what, it, what am I watching? This is almost like a painting in motion that I'm watching here. That's the Peckinpah magic. But other than that, it's 
on either side. It's just like, what is the rest of this movie? It's so generic and bland, even though it has nice moments like uh, Rucker Spider-Manning his way up a truck when they try to hit him with a car. There are, you know, eventually nice action moments like that, but an unfortunate way to end his career, but not not completely uninteresting and not definitely fascinating. But Rutger Howard, John, right? He uh, he crossed over. He started doing English language work. I want to say in seventy eight, seventy nine. I think he was in that miniseries, The Holocaust. I think that was the one he was in. You know, Blade Runner was his real introduction, even though he did Nighthawks in 81 for Stallone. He really was in a lane of like picking these bastards. And that's a lot of the work he did in Holland, as you know, in the Dutch language stuff for Verhoeven in the in the 70s. He, you know, between like Turkish Fruit and Katie Tipple and stuff like that, he he really stamped out this position of like being a wild card. And it's, you know, like in 83, he pivots to trying to be somebody who's honestly the hero of this movie, someone who's who's in over his head and has to be a good guy to figure it out. And I mean, I think he just after this, he decided to that's it. We're going to do the hitcher. It's going to be split second. We're going to do all these different movies. It's like I'm going to stick to my core competency and just be an enigmatic, weirdly accented lunatic. And trying to play a family guy in something is just not going to work for me. It's too bad because I I like the go of it. You know, this is the kind of actor that he was in Holland. And it took him a bunch of years to get his career kind of up and going as a fully formed kind of performer in America. Love Rutger. Love John Hurt. Uh, love Dennis Hopper. I didn't even mention Dennis Hopper is in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's the Austin weekend. That's what it is. <laughs> it's not even the Austin <laughs> weekend. Let's move into the 90s, guys. The 90s. What do we got in the 90s? We've got Embraced Extravagance, right, is how I think of the 90s. America finally gets its own Bond franchise with Mission Impossible in 1996. I think, you know, the the spy movie has to exist with the action movie. I think even the era of Brosnan in the Bond films, you know, embraces that extravagance. John and I talked a little bit about it in our Bond series, how it just goes just... No more fuddy-duddy Roger Moore on the back of a fire truck. We're going to, you know, amp everything up. We're going to be bungee jumping off of dams. And we're going to be flying. We're going to be exploding helicopters every five seconds. That's just, to me, a slightly sort of the 90s kind of style. And so I thought the perfect movie to pick for that would be The Long Kiss Goodnight, Rennie Harlan from 1996. The plot of the movie is written by Shane Black, of course. A Northeastern Pennsylvania school teacher named Samantha Kane, who's a recovering amnesiac, has found uh, was found washed up ashore on the Jersey Beach eight years previous. She's trying with the help of a sleazy PI, Mitch Hennessy, to uncover her past. But before she can, her past finds her in the form of a one-eyed assassin, farm-based arms dealer, psychological operations specialist looking to stage a terrorist attack on Niagara Falls on behalf of the CIA. This is because in her former life, she was Major Charlene Elizabeth Baltimore, a relic of the Cold War, a violent operative who has since been eliminated from the ranks of the agency, and her identity comes back up and, you know, resurfaces from this school teacher who has a husband and, and a daughter. Um, you know, this had been on my watch list for, I don't know, 20 years, so it was a real treat to have a reason to finally scratch it off. Um, yeah, I, I think this movie rips. Um, it's great to see Gina Davis in a badass action movie role. I think both her and Samuel Jackson have said that this is one of, if not their favorite roles they've ever done. And so it's great to see these two actors just doing great work together. Samuel Jackson doesn't play the badass motherfucker in this movie. He's, he's a bit of a coward. He's a real sleazy private eye. Who's, you know, a liar and a fake. 
Um, so it's really fun to see him sort of like subvert his own image, especially so soon after a movie like Pulp Fiction. Um, I think Gina Davis is fantastic as as both roles. And, you know, I, I think it does get a little generic um, towards the end, a little long in the tooth. Um, but I just think it's an absolute fun ride. Um, I do wish that um, Craig Bierko as Timothy, who's the main villain, who I've probably looked up his name a dozen times and I can't remember it. He's absolutely a charisma void in this movie, especially when you have David fucking Morse as a secondary baddie. There's just no, he's, he's, he's one of the best character actors of the 90s and the 2000s just and he's so menacing in the few scenes he's in it it seems like such a waste to have him you know be killed off um especially it, there's a scene like a brilliant torture scene where he's just being so incredibly cruel to, to gina davis and he's so effective and and scary in, in in these moments um despite his sort of like cuddly face and like a flannel shirt fashions so yeah not not many complaints. Definitely my favorite uh, Bernie Harlan movie, I, I have to say. And I wish we could have gotten a sequel or two. I think this is a study in two films, frankly. And I think you have a pulled uh, ligation or stitch between the two halves. And one half is Shane Black and the other half is Rennie Harlan. And the idea is like whose impulses are going to win. And like you say, John, I think immediately towards the back half of this film where it just I tune out. There's so much of the wonderful gimcrack character stuff that's at the beginning, which is so quick, so sharp, so based on uh, Howard Hawksian dialogue and, and you know, the writing is really, you know, quippy and whatnot, but never losing sight of the fact that it's supposed to be dangerous and mysterious and enigmatic um, and elevating, you know, Gina Davis wanting to like get into the game, not be a supporting actor, but really be like an actor not just an actress, but an actor who's capable of like physical leads. So the first half of this movie is great because it's just the Shane Black of it is running through. And it just feels like Rennie Harlan threw out script pages and decided to write it on the fly because all the set pieces at the end, I don't give a fuck. Sam Jackson is more or less thrown out. He's shot. He becomes an accessory to what's going on. There's no more quips. It's all Craig Bierko. And to your point, Craig Bierko was not ready to play yet. Bierko is one of these guys that he was a Broadway actor, stage guy, a lot of musicals. He was in The Music Man, I want to say in like uh, 2000, I think it was, or um, something like that. I think he was on Broadway. And he's one of those guys that actors wanted to him to, you know, he was an actor's actor. People wanted him to succeed. He had a lot of friends. And they think, oh, this would be perfect. He doesn't know what to do with the role. He's not nearly, um, he may have these wide open eyes, but he can't really buy into the Shane Black thing and kind of be the type of villain that you need to like breathe life into a big Shane Black production. But ultimately, like the things that Rennie Harlan does really well, if you go to a movie like Cliffhanger, you know, that movie, it, it, it sticks the landing from, from the beginning to the end because it doesn't fool you with these tonal conceits. And there isn't like a writer, better. there isn't a writer better than Rennie Harlan as a director as the way Shane Black is working on a project like that. We're here. It's like Shane Black is just too big. Um, his, his, his skill won't be correctly corralled until a few later projects and stuff like that. I think, you know, the, um, what is it, the wrong guys? Is that what it is? I'm thinking nice of guys. Um, nice guys. Sorry. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's the beginning of this uh, with proper direction and everyone buying into it. You understanding what kind of movie you're getting. I mean, I appreciate that, you know, this is a success. People, they they think of this movie very fondly. 
Gina Davis, like you said, John, still thinks of it uh, at the top of her uh, her oeuvre. And, you know, she, she hasn't done a ton of work in the last 20 years. Um, I think that uh, Cutthroat Island really, you know, took them, to, even though I think that was before this or after. I forget when Cutthroat Island was, 98, maybe it was before. 99. This was like their recovery movie. Okay, this is the recovery. But that really did dinged her career. It kind of like chipped away at her box office bankability. Um, and of course, Shane, Shane uh, Rennie Harlan and Gita Davis were an item for a couple of years, too, on top of that. So them having this sort of um, maybe a John and Yoko relationship. I don't know who the John, who the Yoko was in that instance, but either way. Yeah, th- this, this is the second time I saw it. I think I liked it a lot more than when I saw it when I was a kid, just because it just feels like Shane Black being muted is, is an inhibition. It feels like it's it, you defang your best asset with that. I think Harlan is a, is a perfect uh, pairing with, with Shane Black personally. I think that I, I think that the mentalities are are lined up in an interesting way. I think that Shane Black does come through in this movie better than he has before he started directing his own scripts, and the big part of that has to do with how fucking amazing Gina Davis is in this film. She is just phenomenal. She's like she's one hundred percent viable as two completely different characters, which becomes Charlie. She seems like a completely different person, not just because she obviously you know can can snap people's necks and and murder a motherfucker, but like she is just a completely different personality entirely. Comes out of this school teacher. It's like if Frank Capra made a spy movie, you know, for she's Belle of the the Christmas parade, and then suddenly she's this very dark kind of representation of American life. Uh, I compare this movie very favorably against Kill Bill or A History of Violence. I think it did that theme, that idea, better than those movies did. And of course, you could compare it to the following decade. You get the Bourne identity or it has the kind of spy re-emerging, you know, from this amnesiac. I think it's better than that. I don't know. I really love this film a lot. And of course, you said Sam Jackson is absolutely amazing in it. He's fantastic. His character is fantastic. Has so many great one-liners. And Bierko, I agree with you guys. He's not quite up to the test, but he's such a great Shane Black villain. He's like John Boy from The Nice Guys before you know that character existed. That you kind of still appreciate the writing, even though the guy delivering them is not not could have made it iconic. He was a fantastic movie star. So for those reasons, and also because there is kind of like an interesting sort of spy subplot to it with the CIA fronting these guys and this fake terrorist uh, attack former best friends now uh, former targets who are now best friends it has like an interesting kind of cynical thought to it and the final stretch the final big climax i don't know i think it works i think you know seeing her you know you talked about you know sutherland in the rain looking so miserable and i i have the needle gina davis looks dead on that bridge you know when she she looks like she has come to the very end of her energy and her vitality and she look, just looks like oh my god every time i watch them i've seen it dozens of times i'm like she's fucking dead charlie's dead on there on the ground because she is so gone to it and the fact that her her little girl brings her back to it by you know repeating the you know, you know get up you know you weakling like that kind of thing it's a great thought like thought on parenting and you know kind of things that are inherited from the parents it's i don't know it seems like this movie's firing on all cylinders for me and it just has so many cool avenues it goes down so many interesting themes that i i love it i I unapologetically love this movie and and i i think it's you know something to remark on in sort of the history of of spy movies you know you mentioned kill bill and and the born films you know this is really the first one to bring the split identity of a spy to its ultimate fruition 
um, up until this point where it's like, okay, these are actually two separate explicit people living in this one body, you know, in a way that, you know, we've seen countless times over the course of the, the movies we've talked about, but this is just so explicit and, and direct. And I think it's even more pronounced than in Kill Bill or Born because we see both of those characters, you know, one scene after, after the other, and we're fortunate enough to have a, an actor as capable as Gina Davis to be able to to pull that off while, you know, flying across the ice, <laughs> dual wielding pistols. So, so yeah, it's, it's a movie that needed a lead like Gina Davis to pull off all those elements. And I'm, uh, because I can tell I'm a bigger fan of like extravagant action movies and set pieces than you guys. I'm going to skip Terminal Velocity. I'm going to go right to our alternate uh, <laughs> movie, which could be more opposite than what we were just talking about. It's Sneakers. I, I do love a, a, a uh, an extravagant action sequence for sure. Okay. That was all right. But you didn't like Terminal Velocity. I know you didn't. No. I know you didn't, John. <laughs> That's why we're moving past it. I will mm. not hear one bad thing said about Ditch Brody. I won't. <laughs> I, I have bad things to say about sneakers though want to hear that what really yes oh my god wow let's get into it then i'm curious to hear that because my whole introduction to sneakers is going to be this is my charade this is my charmed my pants off spy movie from the get-go it is a comfort movie for me it's a film that i'd love to return to all the time it's just it's just so much fun just to go over the plot it's about a self-made team of security specialists which include Robert Redford, Dan Aykroyd, Sidney Poitier and his little Nikita co-star, River Phoenix, David Strathairn, and Mary McDonnell. And they are hired by the NSA to recover a black box, which they soon learn is the ultimate decryptor. Too many secrets, right? And of course, the NSA was a fake front. They are actually being used by a criminal mastermind played by Ben Kingsley so he can acquire the box and destabilize the world economy. Uh, this this is great, man. It's like you know, there, there's so many great '90s pieces. Um, I'm a sucker for the ensemble. Uh, I mean, I think it's fucking great. Danny Aykroyd fitting in with like Sidney Poitier. In what universe was that kind of thing going to happen? You know, you got pieces, bits and pieces of like John Sales in here, and it's just like so many interesting uh, things. And I've become a real appreciator of Phil Alden Robinson. Um, I hadn't seen Field of Dreams until the last few years. I mean, it's like this guy's a real solid craftsman. He may not be an artist or a wizard, but he knows how to make a film. And he knows how to direct A-listers. He knows how to get great performances out of people. He knows tone. You know, and it's like what I like about this movie was that, you know, you, you, know, you were talking, John, in the 80s that the Cold War change the nature of spying and, and they sort of synthesize spying with other things well when you get to the 90s it's like it's corporate espionage it's business espionage it's more of that like michael clayton thing where it's capitalist entities going after one another and it makes sense i mean that was like what did we know i mean i'm saying we as in the three guys here like what do we know about capitalism in the 1990s it was just abstract figures of reading the newspaper and wondering what the hell was business i didn't know anything about it so i mean ben Aff uh, ben kingsley Ben Affleck, Ben Kingsley with his, his balding on top ponytail down the back could have been a real, you know, dot com, proto dot com millionaire, you know, like someone who's not immoral necessarily, but maybe amoral. You know, they're just there's no crime so great that if it gets in the way of making money because capitalism is by its nature amoral. Um, but I mean, you would have to look really long and hard to find a group of actors like this all in one movie playing well. Everybody gets a moment. And the other goddamn thing about this is, you know, River Phoenix died within six months of this movie coming out. 
This is him playing an ensemble <clears throat> with adults. He wasn't just making a movie like Nikita, which is which is a good movie, or Private Idaho, or things that have were soaked in a lot of sort of teenness. This is his graduation towards playing like the 20-year-old guy in the room with a bunch of old salts. And he clearly was, I mean, we knew he was good. We know he, but he was clearly ready to the job to do the job of like working with Poitiers, working with Redford. He could have been Brad Pitt before Brad Pitt's ascendancy in like the mid nineties. He maybe even been a better actor than Brad Pitt. He could have come on earlier and given more sturdier performances at the gate. But it's like this movie has all these pieces. It's a great ensemble. Mary McDonald, all these pieces come together. And I think Phil Alden Robinson was the guy to do the job. Phoenix has never been more charming than when he takes off his hat to introduce himself to the girl at the end of the movies. Forget yeah. it. Oh my God. So great. I, and I think that you got her onto something here. I think this movie is weirdly ahead of its time and its themes and kind of like the idea and obviously computers, uh, even though it seems so quaint, you know, I mean, I was just recently saying to somebody, this movie's all about computers. It's literally about taking over the computer world and, you know, using computers to change the world but it doesn't feel like a computery movie the way a movie like Hackers or The Net feel like, oh yeah, computer movies, right? The 13th Floor. This feels like a person movie. This feels like a movie about people and, you know, good people, I think is like what it comes down to. It's like it's impossible not to side with these guys because they are almost intractably decent, good people who, when they find out what's happening, realize that they have to make amends and they have to like you know change it they have to save the day and it becomes a heist movie it's almost more of a heist movie than it is a spy movie because they have this great big operation that they come together and stay there and oh my god is you know his character you know just you know like the daredevil of the group you know he's got like uses his like blind superpowers to tell where they took robert redford is an engaging scene and all it is is you know him talking like tell me what you heard like you know were you going over a bridge you know what did you hear a cocktail party you know i love that sequence that Phil Alden Robinson is able to make sequences like that, the main show, even more so than like, you know, when they actually have to like tackle a guy with a gun or whatever. I mean, that's the secret. That's the secret uh, sauce of this movie is like those little moments that are just as like engaging as the bigger, as the bigger ones makes it exactly, like I said, a complete opposite of the long kiss. Good night. Yeah. But when your repertory, like the next year after this in 93 uh, sales makes passion fish with Strathairn and Mary McDonald. It's a completely different movie, completely different themes. You know, it's a world apart. That thing takes place out in the bayou. But it's like that's, you know, you 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 put a stick out and that you would poke an actor like that who is ready to be in a movie like Sneakers and was ready to be in a movie like Passion Fish. And, you know, I, but we haven't really started decompressing on the 90s yet in terms of how good we had so many of the years and the pool of actors that came out that were just like getting their footing. Guys like Strathairn, who would go on to get an Oscar nomination with, with uh, a Good Night and Good Luck a decade after that. Um, but it's like you were thick, thick, thick with great actors. And it was just you ate very well if you liked ensembles. All right. Here comes John Arminio to uh, uh, to cut our tires here. Yeah, let, let me just get out of the way of the stuff that I thought worked and, and that I, I really did enjoy. Yeah, the, this ensemble is unimpeachable it's great every performance is is outstanding um david strathairn i love sydney seeing sydney portier in, in this supporting role he, he's great we get to see a little bit of james Earl jones i love that dan Aykroyd plays this conspiracy nut especially knowing his own views on ufos and ghosts and stuff so for him to be spouting this like paranormal nonsense is a great sort of self-deprecating humor i i got i got a lot out of all that stuff 
I just don't believe anything Robert Redford says. <laughs> he just doesn't work for me. And the wrong character is the protagonist of this movie. The guy that got away is the guy that we're following. Because in, in the beginning of the film, Bishop and Cosmo are these two college students who are, who are hacking into, like, like you know, Republican uh, databases to, to try and sort of further a progressive political agenda. Robert Redford's character, Bishop, goes off to, like, get pizza. And that's when the... In, in, in a weird mirroring of three days of the condor he goes off to get food and that's and that's right. when um uh the cops arrest uh ben kingsley's bishop character Cosmo. and so yes Cosmo. and bishop. so we follow the guy who by his own like stupidity i guess got away and just sort of forgot about his best friend in jail for 20 years and we're supposed to be rooting for this asshole like you yeah, i it just didn't get me at all. I thought it would have been better if Cosmo was He's a, a fugitive. Who... He's a fugitive. Man. He can't go. I... What's he going to do about his friend being in prison? What's he going to do? <laughs> He's a hacker. He can. He's John, John. clearly what created about... identities for himself. I, I thought it would have been better if once Cosmo got out of jail after 20 years, he formed this sneaker group and then sort of was trying to get revenge on Bishop and sort of kept that secret from his friends. And so that was sort of the, the break in 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 the sneaker group that he had to convince them, no, I'm actually not about revenge. I'm actually just trying to get this heist going. But you're telling me that the, the personal dating scene between uh, Tobolowski and Mary McDonald, Werner Brandis <laughs> doesn't like pick up the rest of the movie. How improbable a scene like that is where she's just trying to get him to say these words that'll fit in later on. It's fucking brilliant juice, man. No, <laughs> I, I look, I love Tobolowski, but that's just, there's another movie that, later that also just doesn't work for me that i i i I don't have any excuse for it i'm just you know if this comedic sequence doesn't make me laugh then i i can't engage with it this is interesting this is literally a complete reversal of our positions on on charade here yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) i don't think i've ever met anybody who didn't like sneakers john congratulations I, i i think it's more frustrating than dislike because they're just like this is like an all-timer ensemble cast. And so for me to, to not be over the moon. John, it's your it's your Bob Redford bias. That this came up in part one. This is exactly yeah. right down the center, man. Yeah. So so for it to be stained by the presence of this legendary movie star. I'm curious now, is there is there a Robert Redford movie that you love? Is it the old man the gun? Um All is lost, John. The natural? I, no. Downhill racer, <laughs> not the natural. Uh, but yeah, I, I like all his lost more than the natural, and that is nothing but Robert Redford. I, I think old man Robert Redford is much more interesting than because I think even in, in this one, he's pretending to be you know 15 years younger than he is, which is not a new thing for you know movie stars to, to be doing, but for somebody who like me who already doesn't believe him, it's you know an, another element. Wow, that's that's amazing. Redford Redford being the the deal breaker here is is interesting yeah. to me. That's interesting. David Strathen is my Audrey Hepburn any day. That's all I can say. Oh yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll watch him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, guys, let's move into our current century, the the aughts, the zeros. We want to call it the two thousands, which Bill already kind of introduced the idea of corporate espionage becoming more of a thing as we were all became 
more jaded with, you know, the way the world works and capitalism and more critical of the Reagan era. I think we're kind of moving into a decade that really takes a good hard look at that. And uh, to me, I thought an interesting movie to kind of talk about from that angle would be Olivia Sayas's 2002 film, Demon Lover. This is a movie about Michelle Little, who picks up a homeless street musician who, unknown to her, was cursed by the mother of a young girl he messed around with in middle school. Every time he becomes aroused, he transforms into a demon. No, wait, that's my demon lover from 1987. Sorry, guys. Sorry. Screw that up. That's the Scott <laughs> Valentine movie I'm thinking of. Bernie Wrightson did the storyboarding and character design for that movie. Kind of kind of impressive. I wow. believe it. I totally believe it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, thank you for <laughs> that fucking botched joke of mine there. I did it for I did it for Jordy, my wife, because she wanted me to make that joke. Demon Lover from 2002 is about a corporation negotiating to acquire the rights of, to the hentai productions of a Japanese anime studio uh, and getting into business with an internet company called Demon Lover. But one of the executives in charge of the deal, Diane, played by Connie Nielsen, is secretly working for Demon Lover's rival company, Mangatronics. She quickly gets in over her head, commits murder, after which she plunges down to a warped rabbit hole of blackmail, kidnapping, and ultimately enslavement by the dark web. Did not like it. I'm not a big fan of Asayas, to be honest, uh, especially this, uh, you know, turn of this turn of the millennium. Uh, Asayas is strikes me as like um, a Gaspar Noé type French provocateur where he just wanted to work with the female body. He wanted to work with transgressive sexuality and things you weren't supposed to see. It's real, real ooh, outre, naughty type stuff. Look how, look how um, you know, disobedient I could be. But I'm not sure I really ever got what the point of this movie was. It seems like it wasn't interested in anything that was setting in for, for a scene. It was just this weird tone of going back and forth between industrial espionage and and asking Connie Nielsen to do a lot of work to, to limb a lot of information from scene to scene as it becomes a vastly different movie from the opening sequence, which is the best sequence in the movie. She's on the airplane and it's like injecting the water bottle with uh, some sort of like a, a Haldol or Valium or something like that to drug the lady. And it's like, oh, I thought we're going to, is that what we're going to do? Because I'm, I'm all about that. It just, it, it becomes very strange after that. And I think a lot of it is Assayas' directorial style. You know, as far as those sort of quote unquote French masters goes, he's like Bresson where I just don't plug into a single minute of these movies because I just, the actors lose me. They don't act like people. They act like pieces pushed on a game board and they're strangely devoid of, of like spirited brio. And I mean, one of the things I read about this movie is that Chloe Sevigny, who was hot from a couple of years earlier, having done kids, she was sort of on the ascendancy. But I think at this point, Chloe Sevigny, I think, needed a lot of direction to give you great performances. And she did not get that. And she says as much. She says, I came on set. I was excited to do this work in Paris. I think she spoke some French. I know Connie Nielsen was fluent in French for what I understand. But she says, ultimately, when she was done with the movie, she never really got a sense of what Asayas wanted or what these scenes were supposed to be. She she walks through it with this sort of dead, pallid face. Her line readings are completely devoid. They're really cool and, 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 and you know, lifeless in the way that so much Bresson is that I've seen. And I mean, I know that it's hard to, you can't really slam a guy in O2 for this, but it's like this movie is one of those things that has no knowledge of how the internet works or worked. 
it's like he made a movie based on what he thought the internet was and what was going on. And it, it, it looks even creakier now that we're like 20 years out from what was going on in it. But I mean, it was just any number of different aspects of this movie lost me where I was just trying to hold on to something, whether it was the spy craft, whether it was some of the Irma Vep stuff. Actually, I, I like Irma Vep in terms of his movies, but it's like, oh, we're going to get something like that, which is really dark and mysterious and kind of like Matahari like. And I, well, that didn't happen either. So I was just like, at by the end, I kind of didn't care. We left. We watched Connie Nielsen in this really degraded circumstance, and I wonder, well, where the fuck did that come from, and what does this add up to? It didn't really get there for me. See, what I thought you didn't like about the movie was that the father and son at the end are supposed to be American, and they clearly aren't. Well, there's that too. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting because everything you just said is a positive for me in this film, as you know, I as I expected. Yeah, I, I think this is a film about, you know, dehumanization and commodification in a way that like the fact that these people don't seem like real life people works for the movie. You know, the fact that they like are becoming less and less recognizable as human, that reality around them is falling apart. And they're going John, to did you did see you see how, how how hurt Marcus Penn was about my review? I was going to say Marcus just... already Marcus already gave you a hard yeah. time over your yeah, letterbox already, review, so I'm not going to. Already got I'm it, not got it in the ribs from him. Okay, <laughs> he's, a, he's a big fan of this one. I'm a big fan of this okay. one. Um, it's funny because it's like a, it's like a dark journey, like Videodrome, but I think it's better paired with Existence if you're going to compare it to Cronenberg, and that speaks to its uh, naivete about the internet. I think because Existence is a really fun movie with old man Cronenberg having no idea what video games are like. He's clearly never played a video game ever. But like, you know, it becomes like this is Cronenberg's version of what a computer game would be. And this to me is like Asaius's version of what the internet would be and how it kind of like gets into these people's lives and, you know, changes things so that the terror of the movie is that nothing we do actually matters, that things become less and less real. And we're at the end of it, we're nothing. We're all, we're some, you know, figure on a kid's screen in America. John, you must have liked it at least for the Dark Throne on the uh, soundtrack, I would guess. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I always appreciate a bizarre <laughs> Dark Throne reference, you know, um, or use. You know, I, I think um, I do like Asaius generally. Like, uh, yeah, big fan of Irma, Irma Vep. I like Personal Shopper as well. I haven't seen a lot of his movies. But, you know, I know he has this history of have, this grand clouds of Sills Murray. I have not. Check it out. That uh, one's I, great. I will. Yeah. Um, in, in the grand French uh, tradition of writing about American genre movies from 10 to 20 years previous in Coyote Cinema, I know he has he has that going for him. So, he, you know, he's a fan of Spielberg and, and that, those sort of like ho big Hollywood productions. And so I, I find that, you know, pretty fascinating when looking at a movie like this. Um, but yeah, I just found the imagery and the tone and the performances not compelling. Um, yeah, I, I love Connie Nielsen. You know, I'm interested in the themes he's working with of, you know, like the breaking between cause and effect about the the subsuming of our own psyche in, into corporations and the the sort of dehumanization of sexual exploitation it, in a way where you know well if we're not human anyway so why not use our our bodies to to facilitate the satisfaction of others um but just aesthetically there's really long scenes of people talking about the legalese of corporate mergers inside boardrooms and then like here's this hot sex cgi porn from 2001 that we're just going to watch for five solid minutes and so like if we're, we're comparing that aesthetic to 
um, you know, existence or lost highway, which I think is pretty comparable to the last like half hour of this movie. Mm. Like it just, it just do- doesn't hold up. Like there's nothing intriguing for me to like hypnotize my eyes. I, and I think the blandness of this environment that this corporatization is, is creating is sort of like the point it doesn't move me emotionally just because it's just it's just so unappealing it, it as opposed to what lost highway like burrows it's like great great little feelers into my soul i get it i, I get that you know the kind of lack of motive and, and characterization and the kind of bland sort of approach to it might seem like a negative i don't know maybe to me just compared to other films it's so different yeah you know other movies in that approach that that in and of itself that lack of intrigue is what i find intriguing and i feel i i've seen this film a few times now and i find it really surprising every time i see it there's always something that i completely forgot about i forget that gina gershon you know gets up and you know attacks her even after she's been smothered by the pillow i mean they're just things in it that you know I forget that like the murders get completely erased and almost without explanation. We don't kind of know where Diane is at at any point, uh, where Connie Nielsen is at at any point. I, I like that. I like that about the film. I think that the intrigue of the film, the intriguelessness of the film is its intrigue in a, in a weird way. And I like when Isaias goes, uh, goes genre. I really like Boarding Gate, the spike uh, kind of thriller movie he made with uh, Ossie Argento. And I like the kind of thrillery aspects of uh, even Irma Vett or, or films like that. I, I I like following him down. I like that he's not a traditional guy as much as I say, like, I'm a Rennie Harlan fan. I love a good action set piece. You know, I also appreciate someone who's maybe not very good at this, <laughs> trying to do it anyway, uh, because it what comes out is something really different. And, and I think that he has, even though they're kind of not antiquated, but sort of, you know, not expert ideas about the internet and the politics of the internet and how board meetings work and everything. And I, and I love a good, like, you know, three people speaking different languages, you know, in a board meeting kind of thing. I, that's just kind of my, my jam there. But uh, even though he doesn't, he does, he's not an expert in that field. I think he at least understands kind of inherently what's dark and menacing about it, you know, and mm-hmm. what like, as much as we kind of accept pornography and like Japanese animation, like on the internet, there's unquestionably something that is very, very dark about it that he, you know, kind of takes in this movie and kind of just embeds in the plot in a way that's interesting that like all these characters are doomed. If this is the culture that we've all kind of embraced or at least accepted in some way. Uh, sorry, I, I wish I could remember his, his name. I, I didn't write it down stupidly, but um, I did find a video essay by a film critic who, when the film came out, he was on board with the other critics of the time and, and sort of like was on uh, much more like my and, and Bill's side of reviewing this movie. But in the like ensuing decade, he thought he kept thinking about it and rewatched it several times and and was like persuaded to your mode of thinking john Mm. so i am i i love that this movie is sort of the you know the creation of you know a a real artist and that it's able to stick in people's brains even if they don't like it and are able to through the like weirdness of what assays is doing like come out on the other side of it so i appreciate this movie for being able to, to do that for people I'll say the bland corporate environment, especially the francophone corporate environment of working in uh, digital arts, 
you know, what Verhoeven does in L sticks out to me as being a lot more sinister, um, playing off the aspects of just people doing, you know, they're just pushing pixels around. It's a lot of coders or talking about business sense. And yet there's something much more sort of scary and freaky and transgressive about that movie because the actors feel so much more motivated. And, you know, like the video game, uh, hive that um, Isabel Huppert is in charge of could be like the pre that this could be the precursor of that. They can almost exist in the same France in the same Paris, and yet like that that movie comes across as being so much more you know vigorous. There's so much more blood in that film than than this. And working in the sort of same weird corporate you know corporate thing with sex all around you, sort of on the on the you know making it a lot darker and sinister around the fringes sex all around you but at the same time becoming so commodified that it's nothing you know and yeah. art being taken like in in or by a corporation and like so it's not art anymore you know like creativity is what's completely being like taken away from this world i can't believe this movie's 20 years old now i still remember I have vivid memories talking to marcus been about this movie being so excited seeing this film and like all it kind of had in, on its brain and it's kind of interesting to revisit it. And it still feels very relevant to me, even though I do agree with you guys that like I say, it has like kind of a weirdly naive kind of take on some of the themes of this movie, but they're there. I, I think like that's why like this movie works for me because those themes are definitely there and he's talking about them in a way that's interesting and you know, doing it subverting the spy film too, in a way that's interesting and different than it has been done before. So uh, a more traditional spy film that came out in 2007 would be Breach by Billy Ray, which is a John Arminio spy movie if there ever was one. Heavily, heavy religious <laughs> themes, a lot of Catholicism. This is uh, not a movie for grocery cart Catholics for sure. <laughs> um, it is about the 2001 arrest, conviction, and imprisonment of FBI agent Robert Hansen for spying on behalf of the Soviet Union in Russia uh, and for creeping on Catherine Zeta-Jones. Uh, it's um, told through the eyes of Eric O'Neill, who is a young Intel employee of the FBI assigned to pose as Hansen's clerk at the behest of a task force investigating him. Initially, they say it as a sexual deviant. He finds himself admiring Hansen's seemingly strong moral code and distaste for the bureaucracy of the Bureau. He's a budding agent himself and starts to see Hansen as something of a mentor. And then he's told the truth. This guy is the worst intelligence disaster in U.S. history. He's compromised at least 50 undercover agents, along with passing along other sensitive material over his 25-year career. Yeah, this is definitely up my alley. Um, <laughs> I've known a lot of a lot of Catholics like Robert Hansen, people who lord their beliefs and religion over other lesser Catholics. Um, he's somebody who uh, who converted to Catholicism, so I don't really have that experience with with others. But you know, he's he's clearly. You know, he he views Catholicism or at least Christianity as the only way to a true morally virtuous life and compels his underlings to, to those same beliefs. And that really um, causes some psychic turmoil in Ryan, Ryan Phillippe's character, Eric O'Neill. Um, I can't remember. This... Did they mention in the movie that he's a member of the Opus Dei? I know the real guy was. No, was no. The uh, there, there is yeah. no Opus Dei mentioned in the film. Yeah, this is another film with with uh, an outstanding supporting cast: Laura Linney, Dennis Haysbert, Gary Cole, uh, Bruce Davison. Ryan Philpy is a little out of his depth, I would say. Um, like he, he's fine, um, but I I think because his role is somebody, so, so he's supposed to be out of his depth. He's he's desperate to 
to get something on this guy that he was assigned to, you know, for a reason unbeknownst to him. Um, but I think what also hits me personally about this movie is is how it really dissects the the chaos and the damage that can be caused by a lack of communication or cooperation between intelligence agencies. And there, there's such rivalry between the CIA and the FBI that that allowed Hansen to operate the way he did. And I think the film really does illustrate that well. And that's just something that, you know, in, in my conversation with, with my father that we, we've talked about quite a bit, it's just also just Chris Cooper is on fire in this film. Like he's such a creep, but he's also somebody you can understand how a 20 something underling can sort of be in the thrall of this guy. Cause he's, he's obviously brilliant. He has these great um, unique ideas that could appeal to somebody without the necessary experience to recognize that he's actually a duplicitous asshole. Um, and so, yeah, I was one of the three people, I think, to see this movie in theaters uh, when it came out in 2007. So it was it was great to revisit it. Um, I had not seen it before this watch. And yeah, you know, the only soft spot in this is Philippi. And he's my he's my Robert Redford, John. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I I don't buy him for a single second in anything. He nearly ruined McGruber for me on top of that. He I have he does not have a place in any single film. However, when you get past Philippi. Yeah, this this movie is a fucking backhand across the cheek. I mean, um, Cooper may have won the Oscar for John LaRoche in adaptation, but I mean, this is the performance of a lifetime. Only, yeah, only some of the things that Sales did with him, um, you know, whether when he was in Matewan, when he comes out of the box as a young man, out of the out of these out of the theater system, Sales used him really well as a young, handsome, dewy guy. I mean, Lone Star is fantastic, but this is what the seasoned actor who's already you know he's already got the oscar he's able to kind of like settle into a role he's got skill at this age that he didn't have as a younger man and uh, i mean i think that how i reacted to tar last year watching kate blanchett fully inhabit a role in a career of gigantic tenpole roles, she did something different with that role that she hadn't done in her career. I'm like, oh, this is what Chris Cooper did with this movie back in 07. He might not, he may never do something as all-encompassing as this, where the movie is based on his charisma. He's the center of it. He his shoulders are broad enough to hold everything up, shoring up all the weak spots and making the strong spots even more ironclad. And to your point, you know, it's true. His charisma as an actor belies the charisma that whatever this this creation of Hansen because we don't know what he was like in real life this is a this is an insuit generous creation for the movie but you can see his, I find his Catholicism totally scary and bewitching and and and, and mind-boggling and cruel and limiting and all those things but yeah, in the passive aggressive way he pressures Philippi's wife to be more yeah. more Catholic it's it yeah it's horrifying. Yeah, and then the way he, but he he deals with this thing like he has absolutely perverse sexual language too, where for him these perversions of taping his wife and asking people to tape him and his wife outside the window having sex and the tape being out there, it's like well it kind of makes sense it's all fucked up way that the guy's got no grammar for any of this stuff he honestly does not know how to live as a human being on earth he's better in a basement 
you know, with no windows and just one door and, 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 a, and a complex pad locked to get into his office. And he knows that Ryan Phillippe was in the office just by the, the air is different. The molecules are arranged differently when he walks in. Somehow he knows that. But um, yeah, this creation of Robert Hansen, I guarantee you was way more interesting than the real Robert Hansen could ever be. Maybe Aldrich Ainge, what is it? Uh, Aldrich Ainge was the previous huge intelligence disaster. Maybe he was a more interesting guy in real life. But we'll take the Chris Cooper version of this. You know, and Billy Ray isn't like a huge, you know, he doesn't have like a real fastball as a director. He only has a few movies. He's mostly known as a writer. Um, but he really lucked out in getting Chris Cooper as his, as his, you know, partner on this one, being able to acquit and abet the vision better probably than most of any. I can't imagine another actor I would think is Robert Hansen other than him. And it's such a showy role, which you know, could be an absolute minefield for, for an actor because Hanson is performing throughout the whole movie. He's performing his his superior intellect. He's performing his Catholicism. He's performing his disdain for Philby. He's performing his disdain for his superiors, all the while hiding this decades-long career of treason. And I think Cooper just nails the artificiality of Hanson's performance and it's just such an interesting actor person performance to watch. Real life Hanson is such a schlub. You see a picture of him and you're like, of course he really looks like that. He should probably be like praising the skies that they got Chris Cooper or someone like Chris Cooper to play him because it is immensely flattering to, to a schlubby looking motherfucker like this. Uh, I'm going to start talking about Felipe because I agree Felipe is not a good actor, but I am, in, I am fascinated by great actors in scenes with bad actors because the bad actor becomes better just 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 inherently being yeah. within that same environment becomes better and this movie is a case study in it because when he's in scenes with cooper they are both great when he's in scenes with the wife the tv actress character she's awful he's awful they should have cut those scenes out of the movie they are really just lying on the screen like a fart like they are completely ineffective but Cooper and his incredible performance here demands, demands that Felipe show up and like be in those scenes with him. And so that's why this movie works, I think, because Cooper just dominates this film. So amazingly, he leans over to take a sip from a water fountain and I am enthralled, you know, like that's acting right there. His, you know, Robert Hansen is so amazing. And in terms of performance, like you guys were saying, it, it's, it's also fascinating because you don't know where this guy starts and where he ends. I mean, that's the most interesting thing about him. One thing I love, a performance I absolutely adore, is uh, John Cassavetes in Rosemary's Baby, who plays an actor who is lying to his wife. And you see him literally preparing when he like walks into the living room to play this role for her. You know, you see him like as an actor getting ready to like be deceitful. But you don't see that at all here. You don't know where like he begins and he ends. Uh, except that he obviously, you know, is a very, very horrible and unhappy person. I, I think that with the three of us, I probably like know office work more than any anything, you know. Um, and to me, like, this is like a really interesting, like disgruntled office worker movie. Not only, you know, is he complaining about those rec forms are for bureaucrats and stuff like that. Like, just take a computer from the hallway. They're not using it. They're not doing anything with it. Things like that seems like it's not a big deal, but like you are in a position where you have to be, un, you know, inscrutable. You're in a position where you cannot say just grab a computer from the hallway. Like that is where like the moral line slips 
entirely. If you're just going to grab a computer from the hallway, you're going to like sell secrets to the Soviets. You know, like that's just the kind of person you are. You can't be in this position and make these little compromises, I think is what this movie is saying. Uh, I don't know, you know, what's saying about Catherine Zeta-Jones fans, but, um... <laughs> <laughs> but on on the other hand, Hanson's all the shit that he was saying is correct. The American intelligence system is broken. It failed. Yeah. It failed yeah. so many times, you know, because this, you know, this stuff occurred shortly after 9-11 and, you know, 9-11 was not too distant in the rear view in 2007. And so, you know, we're, and obviously, you know, in, in the wake of the Iraq war, the American intelligence apparatus absolutely failed, Yeah, you know, for, for decades and decades and decades. And so you could see and understand why someone like Hanson would be appealing for, for Eric O'Neill. And I think that's also compelling as a viewer because we're like, yeah, why is the most powerful country in the world so fucking stupid when it comes to the CIA, which should be like the greatest intelligence gathering entity in on the planet. But uh, when it really comes down to it, it's not. And so that's another aspect of the movie that, you know, is just so fascinating. Yeah, you want to know what it falls apart? Yeah, sure. What it made me think of watching Cooper of all things, I'll invoke the name. It made me think of Bill Cosby. In terms of Bill Cosby was this man who, you know, emitted these these rays, uh, depending on how you thought about it, either they were really stringent or they were warm and friendly. But there was this idea of morality and what's appropriate and the way to behave and comportment. And all the while, the guy was this sex predator monster that somehow squared his behavior in deep, dark. You know, there were, the two things behaved independently, this cognitive distance. And, you know, that's where Cooper wins because he managed to square away this behavior of this this horrible, atrocious crime with the idea that he's excoriating everybody for not praying correctly or enough times a week. You know, that is such a hard line to toe. And I mean, maybe at some point we'll get a Cosby movie that sort of dares to try to explain these things in a human way. I'm not necessarily sure Cosby's earned it. But it is interesting to try to get into that headspace of like, who the fuck are these guys? Who, who, who gets into that place in their life where that's the way they live? It's stunning. Yeah, the fact that he is actually a sexual predator, you know, is pretty convenient because he plays this you know role. The way he brings uh, Eric in, the way he brings Felipe in is like he's grooming him, right? He literally is like acting like a sexual predator, which is funny because in real life, his final that final dead drop that he makes that gets him busted. He recommended O'Neill as his replacement, the replacement mole. He said, maybe you guys want to look into this guy. He was really grooming him to like take over for him to like be his, the, the next uh, Robert Hansen. Uh, another thing I want to bring up is just that recent history movies, movies that are made, you know, really soon after the real event happened. I think that like a, a big plus for me, at least in like American films is that they've gotten better. I think um, you know, I always think about like the Green Berets, like the John Wayne Vietnam movie. I mean, like, this is what John Wayne thought Vietnam was, everybody. You know, like this recent, ridiculous like take on a, a recent event. But I think movies like this, movies like uh, United 93 and films like that have like gotten really well-rounded, interesting takes on like recent actual events. And Breach for me is like one of those, one of those movies that really like works really well for me. I think the things that work the least for me are the more kind of thrillery aspects of it, you know, putting the Palm pilot back in the right pilot and before he opens the door, which is funny because it turns out that's all true. That whole Palm pilot thing that really is that what happened, except of course he 
didn't you know uh, clone it himself he had to take it down to like it people to do it but like him putting being worried that he put it in the wrong pocket these are all real life stuff but uh which is funny because when i see that i'm like this is the cheesy hollywood stuff they had to throw in the movie no really happened really happened this is a really I, uh, underrated film i think yeah and i think for, for me just in felipe's defense i think him being not with it enough to remember which pocket he took the palm pot out of it's like oh yeah i can believe ryan Philippe would forget that <laughs> yeah absolutely i'd say it wasn't believable definitely yeah <laughs> all right so to round out the decade uh there are a few films we can just do a, a quick few things on there's the taylor of panama john borman's movie from 2001 which i appreciate because i love a good sleazy pierce brosnan movie i think that's his best is a sleazy cad a handsome, amoral cad is like the role that Pierce Bronson was made to play. He's great in The Matador. Mm-hmm. He's great in this. And this movie, it's funny because it's based on the Le Carre no, novel, but it's uh, it's basically our man in Havana, right? It's the, yeah, it's the, yeah. the Graham Greene story where he recruits this uh, non-spy who then gives him all this false information, which leads to bad consequences. It's essentially the same movie. Yeah, you know, as a a bond fan it was fun to see brosnan really you know do the inverse of james bond the the he's a sleazy bastard that james bond would pretend to be in the in the second act of of a movie and so that that was cool to see i I do think um pierce brosnan is the most awkward sex scene actor in the 90s because he he plays it the same way he plays getting tortured just lots of really loud grunts and straining, and it's weird to watch. Very off-putting. Sorry, Pierce. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think the real star of Taylor Panama is is Jeffrey Rush, just somebody who's on the run from his own past, pretended to be somebody that he knows he's not, um, is had to escape to Panama to actually become a tailor and sort of has to you know live this double life of um an ex-con who's pretended to be somebody from Savile Row and uh, there's this element that really doesn't play out for me at all where he's sort of imagining his former mentor like talking to him and giving him very bad advice it just seemed like a lot of um wasted space where maybe Jamie Lee Curtis could have occupied more because it, it feels like she's an underused um but yeah, um, and I really admire this movie for for taking on the very complicated relationship between the West uh, or the colonial powers, I guess, and, and Panama, because they've had their dirty mitts in that country for, you know, 150 years and have taken away its its sovereignty at different at different points. And, you know, um, and so I, that aspect of it, I like that. so I don't know if the movie entirely holds holds together. But it was cool to watch for for the podcast. I think John Borman makes movies interesting just by being John Borman. You know, Absolutely. it's like uh, there aren't too many instances of you know a, a John Borman movie just having the bottom fall out on it because he just there's this real strength of him as a director being able to get confident performances from actors and a real sense of place. Um, I mean, even watching something like Zardoz, you know, he he kind of invents like a whole science fiction movie out of out of whole cloth. You know, that's that's that didn't exist before he got there to make it. You know, he's in, in Emerald Forest. You know, this is just really interesting guys and interesting places. And, you know, he looks as comfortable in the city as he does in the jungle as a filmmaker and never feels out, outmatched. 
No, what I really like about this movie, and and me and James Hancock covered this on the Jamie Lee Curtis rundown we did a bunch of years back, is that you know one of the things that Jeffrey Rush is dealing with is almost like the sense of imposter syndrome about you know how how hot and how sexy Jamie Lee Curtis is. You know, it's like he's going to get skunked by a, a quicker, sexier man. He's going to be cuckled. You know, he just can't quite believe that she's ever going to, like, be in love with him for who he is. You know, I mean, he does a lot of double dealing and a lot of talking and a lot of, a lot of you know, psychological leisure domain. But I just love the fact that he just never feels like he's in it with Jamie Lee Curtis. Doesn't quite trust that relationship as if there's anything inside of him that's truly lovable. Um, yeah, you know, and, and, and Brosnan, I guess between this and Thomas Crown, you know, he he could not quite get out of the spy lane or the sort of, um, you know, he had a type. I mean, he, I don't think he could just play a normal guy. He didn't really show up for that in his career. And the fact that this is so close to bond while he's doing bond was a little, you know, I, I don't know who else I would have cast for this, but I guess there's probably many other actors who you could have brought in that wouldn't have brought the bond baggage with him. And I mean, maybe it would have been even better if you weren't thinking of James Bond at all. If he was like a completely different type of spy that didn't have a sort of preconceived notion about the job he did, you know. And the thing about Pierce Brosnan, the older he gets, the sort of more Costnerian he is, where he looks like a handsome boy gone to seed a little bit, where his, you know, once plump features and the sort of pomaded hair starts to look a little more sleazy the older he gets. It's a different kind of sexual energy. Maybe he doesn't notice it, but we do. And that's why older Pierce Brosnan looks different than like Scarecrow, uh, no, Scarecrow, Remington Steele Pierce Brosnan, who just is like almost effortlessly sexual. But John, I was just thinking, you said Pierce Brosnan in a sex scene, by that logic of what you said works and what qualifies, the, the, the come on scene with Paul Freeman in The Long Good Sunday is probably the most successful Pierce Brosnan sex scene that you've seen. He doesn't say a word during the whole thing. Absolutely. Okay. That's a great movie. That's a great oh, movie. Fantastic movie. Love it. Yeah, I, I love in Taylor Panama how he's like a Sidney Riley type character. You know, he's just someone who like knows the system, totally out to exploit it, totally cynical. You know, yep. that's the kind of like fun spy character you want to watch. And he's perfect. Yeah, so th this is another uh, punishment for him, um, which is an interesting parallel with um, Most Wanted Man in Philip Seymour Hoffman's character. Uh, Black Book by Paul Verhoeven from 2006. And I'm sorry, Bill, I'm going to say Verhoeven because that's just in my head. That's how I've always thought of it. That's how it's going to stay. But uh, it's another great spy movie. Uh, I would say, I mean, it's a Matahari movie, right? I mean, it's just straight up, you know, female spy in the hug and effortlessly done by Verhoeven. I don't know what else to say about it other than like, you took this very specific kind of movie and you did it perfect. That's the Verhoeven way. You know, that's the touch. It doesn't have sort of the more kind of uh, subversive, you know, a playful sort of elements of some of his other films. It's just kind of a straight up fun spy movie. I think that's all I have to say about Black Book, which is great. Yeah. Um, one thing I do really appreciate about it is that the gun battles are short and brutal. Mm, sure. um, people, people get fucking killed. There's very little like, oh, we're going to scatter. And for some reason, 12 guys with submachine guns are going to miss us as we reach the tree line. Nope, nope. These the defenseless Jewish refugees are getting murdered. Uh, and so that that is definitely the less fun aspect of the, of the film. But I think, um, uh, Bill, the actress who plays Rachel. Carice uh, Van Houten? Yeah, she's absolutely phenomenal in the film. She's, you know, every scene of the movie, she does everything Paul Verhoeven asks her to do, which is uh, quite a bit 
and you just believe her on this journey, you know, from, you know, somebody is, is narrowly escaping death, watching her parents get murdered to being a, a, a double agent or, or at least, you know, somebody, you just believe her as somebody escaping from seeing her parents being massacred by, by Nazis to being forced to work with Nazis for the Dutch resistance and spending her you know, every waking hour pretending to be a Nazi, basically. And I think it's it's pretty remarkable performance in, in you know, a genre movie, the kind of genre movie that doesn't get critical attention for its performances, unfortunately, but I think she really deserves um, as much praise as you can heap upon her. You know, she gets covered with literal shit in this film which i, I was think gonna is, say, that's the only thing she got heaped on yeah yeah <laughs> which is probably i think that moment is a little where we see verhoeven um sort of like a, a little too verhoeven <laughs> um for a, a, a world of two spy movie although but i do appreciate this film pointing out the real vindictive post-world war ii tactics that um the conquered nations used for for what they saw as collaborators. Like there was some real cruelty exacted upon, especially women who were forced to cooperate or or be kept women for for Nazis. And you know, it, it obviously wasn't their choice. You know, for the majority of them to have to trip, maybe save the, their own lives or the lives of their families by, um you know, humiliating themselves, degrading themselves to, to the occupying force. So I, I appreciate that this movie was able to, to point that out in, in so visceral fashion. You know, this movie is the, um, so far as I know, the most recent and last collaboration between Verhoeven and uh, Gerard Sutaman, who's his co-writer going back to the 70s. I'd say a lot of the golden age stuff that you know Verhoeven doing here in Holland was the two of those guys together. They kind of formed a brain. I think they worked on florist together i think they may have been tv guys in the 60s but they really set dutch filmmaking on its ear in the, in the 70s and that was the team before verhoeven went to america he made his magic with gerard sutaman but this movie has got everything you want in it for a war movie i mean it, it's it's a companion piece to soldier of orange for sure and the thing that soldier of orange had was a lot of spy craft and the two i would say the two biggest actors in dutch history Jeroen krabbe and rutger hauer playing like frat brothers in that movie excellent team this is the obverse of that coin because you know what he's doing is fixating on like the jewish experience and you know what i've learned from being in this country for a couple of years is that even though we're in 2023 world war ii still has a gigantic bootprint on this country um in the same way that there's a lot of depression era thinking and in the way that i've seen from a lot of jewish families there's that idea of shtetl thinking eastern european peasant uh pessimism and like a real sense of doom pervades it's hard to get rid of that it gets handed down from generation to generation and so i wasn't aware of that stuff when i saw this movie the first time but i i am aware of it now that i'm inside the country and so like the sins and the horror of this war since it is such a small place and the fact that the jews were all just excoriated from the earth uh, you know, Verhoeven is, was born Catholic, but is an atheist, very um, entranced by religion over the course of his career, but is engaging in the story of Rachel Stein here, played by a non-Jewish actress, Carice Van Houten. Um, but it's like her, you know, it's revenge. And it's revenge because she's a Jew. You know, she identifies as a Jew, even though she she dyes her pubic hair, she dyes her hair blonde. 
she, you know, engages in sex when she needs to. Um, she's like a machine, you know, she's a predator, hunter killer going through these Nazis to get to the, you know, eventually it turns out that the, you know, the turncoat sold everybody out at the end. Um, but it's, you know, a testament to the fact that there's still so much uh, wartime architecture left here in the cities that weren't bombed that you can actually shoot a World War II movie. This could not be shot in Amsterdam and it couldn't be shot in The Hague for the most part because those cities have modernized. But there's still other cities like Delft and uh, and Gouda where you, you could essentially fake the uh, auspices of like wartime Germany. But I mean, this is so strong. It's just a murderer's row of Dutch actors, guys who are still like at the top of the food chain in TV and movies here for a small country. It may not be the best Verhoeven movie, but I mean, it is an estimable Verhoeven movie. It's an epic that you just feel every single goddamn minute of it. It's unquestionably as good as this kind of movie could be. The conflict in the second half of the movie between the different Nazis is also, you know, pretty true to history because there was a great deal of different groups of Nazis turning on each other. Um, You know, the, the regular Wehrmacht versus the SS would be the most prominent conflicts but you know really trying to put themselves in a better light um to the americans or especially to the russians like hey we're not so bad please don't try us with war crimes and and hang us when you when we eventually surrender so there was a lot of of that going on so that aspect of of the second half of the movie i I thought was also real interesting definitely and you know kind of verhoeven understanding how how things work, you know, where the the Nazi who cooperates with, you know, the uh, allies when they you know arrive in the city, and uh, they treat him just fine, like just a just a regular guy, and then you yeah. know the the quote unquote good Nazi, the guy who has been much more sympathetic, you know, and uh, and helpful to the cause, gets executed immediately because you know one of them knows how to work the system, the other one doesn't. And I think it's sort of a cynical kind of look on on the world that Verhoeven appreciates. All right, fellas, moving into the 2010s, the previous decade. Uh, we're going to start with another John Le Care adaptation. He's still hanging around, still writing books up to this point. This movie is A Most Wanted Man, directed by Anton Corbin and released in 2014. The plot is that uh, the most wanted man in question is Isa Karpov, a political refugee from Chechnya who has been tortured by Russian security forces and then illegally enters Hamburg where he immediately comes under the lens of several covert government teams, including one led by Gunter Bachmann, played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, who seeks to recruit local informants with ties to Islamic terrorists. They end up using Karpov to prove a Muslim philanthropist is funneling money to Al-Qaeda, an operation which is aided by a sketchy German lawyer, an idealistic immigration lawyer, and an American diplomatic attache. And just from the kind of off the bat, I mean, I think the thing that you can't escape from this film is that it's Philip Hoffman's last movie released before his death. And he looks like he's dying <laughs> this entire movie. He's like his wheezing, his slow movements. I don't think it was genuinely reflective of his, it might've been, I don't think it was genuinely, I, I don't know if it was genuinely effect. I think it is still a performance he's giving, but I think that there is with that knowledge, like a sort of fatigue and hopelessness to this character that really kind of informs the entire movie. I don't know. Am I just am I talking out of my ass? What do you guys think? Well, I, I think you know that speaks to how viewing an artist's like lit uh, last work um, can change the way we view a thing. Because like Nirvana's song, "You Know You're Right," like 
knowing that Kurt Cobain killed himself like four months after that song was recorded, he's that is the sound of a person dying in that vocal performance. And I think, you know, even though it's a great song, you, you can't escape that. And, and knowing that, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, you know, is here, you know, fueling himself on alcohol and cigarettes. He has that one moment late in the film where he's just, he sits sort of like plaintively playing the piano and it's like, Oh, you know, it seems like this guy knows he doesn't have much left in him. Um, both the character and, and the actor. And I think that definitely adds to the tragedy of his character of, of Hoffman as a performer and, you know, what goes on in the film, because, you know, it's a pretty harrowing and, and almost nihilistic view of international espionage. This is that thing where, you know, without Hoffman, I mean, you'd have a movie but you kind of wonder what movie would it be without this this sort of tentpole of of a, a buy-in, a total buy-in, like the kind that Hoffman gives um, Anton Corbijn. And I always get fooled because I think, you know, what you have a, like a photographer slash music video guy turned film actor. I always think it's going to be like gauzy, lighter than air fair. You know, it's always like a Tom Ford Granted, doesn't make bad movies, but I think he makes these movies that really come a little overpraised by the time they get to you. You know, he's he's just used to making perfume and you know men's trousers, and it's like, oh, I'm a master of the beautiful image. And it's like, well, I'll be the judge of that. You know, I again, I don't hate the movies he makes, but it's like, it's a premium on it being gauzy. But you know, uh, Anton Corbijn knows what he's doing. You know, and this is a grittier movie than I would have given him credit for. It's it, every bit of it hangs with a lot of intensity because of the charisma of the actors. Um, you know, the tone, the setting of, I think this was Hamburg, this movie took place in. And we really, you know, we really don't know what that looks like on film. You know, just based on this, it could be fucking Liverpool or Manchester. It has a sort of burnt out industry town feel past its prime a little bit. Kind of betwixt it between dot-com boom and like East German privation. And, you know, Hoffman, even though he's doing a very out of the book German accent, his in, his engulfment into this character is all consuming. So it doesn't matter what he sounds like because he's speaking with cigarettes. He's speaking with his rumpled sport coat pulled up in the rain. You know, he's speaking with the desk and the cigarette, the curls of cigarette smoke that come out of his ashtray. That's like sort of like doing a lot of the vocabulary for him. Um, you know, but you do have a murderer's row of actors. And I forgot that Nina Haas was in this movie. You know, Daniel Bruhl is in this movie. These actors who would get a lot of, you know, they would come on strong after this. I know Nina Haas from those Chris John Petz old movies that, you know, she's the star of the show. She may be the best actor Germany has right at the moment. And this is kind of like just doing a supporting role in English language movies. You know, the weakest part of this is Rachel McAdams. She just, she kind of doesn't hang with the rest of this. I'm not saying she's a Philippi type lightweight but I think the I know that she wants to do stuff like this. I just don't know if she could get to the height. And and I don't not really sure she's she's like hangs in those scenes with Philip Hoffman the way Ryan Philippi jumped on those scenes with Chris Cooper. It doesn't really fill the the the, the frame nearly as much, especially since she has a lot to do on her own in all these side jobs, which she's talking back and forth with these Chechens and these 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 Moroccans and whatnot who are hanging around uh, or Lebanese. I forget where the rest of them are from. But I mean, it's it's great. It's got a whammy of an ending. I, I think if if you look at where 
Robin Wright comes in on this one. Maybe you see it coming. I did not. That oh yeah, she's she's part of the U.S. intelligence apparatus, and she's going to put her her stiletto heel down and just fuck everything up. You know, just blow the whole shot. You don't know where this is going, but it's it's great. You know, and it's like it ends when it ends. That's the other thing it does. It's like that's the end of the movie when the thing goes to shit and Hoffman slinks away. Don't have another scene. Get the fuck out. The movie's over. Everything was blown, and you told your story. And yeah, Corbine does a great job at that. Yeah, I think Robin Wright it just nails it as the sort of ice cold spy operator who's able to manipulate uh, Hoffman's Gunter, who's supposed to be the the manipulator and, and the brains behind this German intelligence apparatus. Um, they're so passive aggressive toward each other, and it, it's so delicious and cringy at the same time when they're sort of like discussing spy strategies and 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 how best to you know, counteract what Al-Qaeda is doing. And it's very, it's a real interesting and almost wonky look at um, different strategies of of counterintelligence. The very, like, brute force, like, boot-to-the-throat manner of what the Americans want to do and the, the long game that Philip Seymour Hoffman is playing. Because when people ask him, like, what's the end goal that you're tr- trying to accomplish? And he's like, make the world a safer place. Isn't that enough? Um, whereas, you know, Robin Wright's character wants a win. You know, that, that she can show to her superiors and get herself promoted. And I think that's what a lot of uh, what Hoffman's rivals are intending for um within germany that's what they want as well they want to be able to show the people who you know make their budget that they caught a terrorist and that doesn't really interest hoffman and i think seeing that um you know conflict between all these agencies is is pretty uh disheartening because it, it means that like people who don't deserve to get like a warrantless renditioned out of Germany to some hole in Eastern Europe or or the Middle East, like they're the ones that that, that get caught up in this. And I really found the performance um, by Grigory uh, Dobrigin uh, as Isa Karpov, this like tortured uh, Chechen who's trying to escape like his warlord father's legacy. I, I thought that was really compelling and sort of the, the perfect pawn between all these agencies and there's you know there's one moment where robin wright like in a board meeting like winks at 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 hoffman and i'm like oh you are gonna fuck somebody over before the end of this movie uh and but it's just perfectly played by by robin wright fuck you buttercup (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah i mean like you were saying with breach this is a movie about a broken system right and how these agencies can't work together they can't you know do anything competently they can't agree on an agenda you know and things get totally fucked because of it i love that bachman's uh group they're kind of like the mom and pop operation right trying to exist within a more sanctioned corporate government agency uh system they're almost like the mom and pop video shop you know and they have this very humanistic idea that it's you know we need to save the people you know like they're people don't need to have their lives ruined uh, that we need to actually see them as real people. He even has that line where he says uh, to Rachel McAdams, you're not betraying him, you're saving him. That's an act of love. 
you know, and it's like a very idealistic kind of idea. Obviously, it's a little cockeyed, but um, it's effective. It's really effective. This movie is like Breach. This movie is very haunting. I, I, I forgot to mention that haunting ending to Breach where, you know, the elevator doors open, which is absurd, obviously, that they would bring him after he's been captured back to the building, back to the office. It's almost like a fantasy sequence, but what a haunting moment where he says, pray for me. Like that just, that stayed yeah. with me. This movie stayed with me when I saw it. I thought about it a lot. And part of it obviously is that haunted Philip Hoffman um, performance and the fact that he passed away. But even more so, there's just this sad resignation to it in uh, in Karpov as a person uh, who is, you know, treated like an entity by all these agencies, you know, something that's someone who is completely dehumanized, you know, just a, a target. You know, just somebody that you have to think about who's on a piece of paper, not as a real person. And Rachel McAdams' character really trying to reach him as a person and this agency ultimately failing to save him the way that they they want to do is very haunting. But it's also a very enthralling film. You know, it doesn't have big action set pieces, but it m- reminds me of Spies. It reminds me of Fritz Long's film without throwing trains at people and shootouts and everything. The The climax comes down to a pen, someone signing a piece of paper. Like that to make that interesting, that's like some expert uh, filmmaking right there. I mean, you're positive that like the sun's gonna rush in and shout, "Don't sign it, Dad!" You know, like you know, it's gonna be like this cheesy thing, but it's like you're so tense just watching him get that pen and sign that piece of paper, so that the you know extraordinary rendition that happens afterwards is kind of just like a a sad sort of dynamo. I was gonna say the way they turn um, Abdullah's kid against him is such a sort of over, I mean, there's so many strange dark tragedies of this, but it's, you know, it's just like one broken rib and this beating you get through the entire movie that this kid sells out his dad because he sold a bill of goods on him. He just has to assume that they know what they're talking about. And, and you know, Humayun Ershadi is so enigmatic. He He's such a reserved brick wall uh, as an actor, I mean, the only other movie I've seen from him, I think, is Taste of Cherry. And he does the same thing there, too, where, you know, you kind of you, there's a storm going on underneath the skin of this man. You never quite figure out why all this stuff is happening to him or what he's demanding of the world around him. And some actors can play that really well. Some people leave you a little adrift that you can't quite breadcrumb yourself back through the maze. But he's so reserved, you know, you just is like, is, is this guy just a, a dead eyed bureaucrat who's like a he can sends money through here and he's just a, a person who routes money or is he really the bad man they say he is sending money out to Hamas and Hezbollah and all these places. And he just makes you second guess. You have no idea where this guy is on the moral compass. He just doesn't give you any kind of leeway to like, oh, yeah, I'm giving myself up as a bad guy or no, I'm completely you know, I'm exonerated. I have nothing to do with any of this. You don't know what that guy's performance. Yeah, absolutely, Bill. And another thing I think this movie does extremely well is without exposition exposition dumps or without being boring, it gets across how interconnected so many things are when it comes to international espionage and terrorism because it it manages to connect all these different intelligence agencies, but also international charities, how money is funneled through them through, you know, money laundering and fraud, international banking, um, Russian war crimes, uh, you know, like I said, warmless uh, rendition, uh, the the refugee system of of Europe and, you know, people going from Russia through Turkey to, to Germany. So it, it it really gets across. The global nature of of what spying is, of what counterintelligence is, w- without it being boring, and 
and I thought first for, you know, a movie that is able to really focus on its characters as what, you know, tells its story. I thought that was a remarkable accomplishment. Moving on to Bridge of Spies from 2015, made by Steven Spielberg. Another real life <laughs> story about the trial of arrested KGB spy Rudolf Abel, his impassioned yet ultimately unsuccessful defense by Brooklyn-based lawyer and negotiation to exchange him at the Glinicky Bridge in Berlin for a captured U-2 pilot and an American student. It's a Spielberg movie. What do we think? I I rewatched this, guys. Um, I'm just I'm just Spielberg's boy. Like, <laughs> what can I say? I love this. I love the Fablemans. I love West Side Story. I'm in for it, baby. Give me seventy year old Steve. Um, uh, and this definitely has an earned reputation as sort of an ultimate dad movie. I mean. This movie ends with Tom Hanks impressing his wife and his kids at the same time, then immediately taking a nap. Ultimate dad fantasy. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, you know, it uses an insurance lawyer as a mouthpiece for, for the importance of civil rights. Like Tom Hanks gives a great speech about how, you know, you know what makes us Americans? The rules. And that's what's in the Constitution. And that's why he has to take up the defense of this, you know, accused Russian spy. And I'm, I'm all in for it. You know, like I, I have immense sympathy for Gary Powers, the crash U2 pilot who was clearly, you know, used as, you know, chattel by the Americans to, to fly these planes. Like, you know, better to kill yourself rather than be captured. Uh, and and the, the humanity that Tom Hanks brings to a role, like he, he Tom Hanks it up all over the place. He he makes you believe that it's possible to get two people imprisoned by the Russians for one, one Russian spy, and he's able to accomplish it. And I love all the little details of him having his coat stolen, of him getting a cold and just wanted to get the hell out of East Berlin because he just wants to sleep in his own bed. You know, I think, yeah, the the most sympathetic spy out of uh, all, all these movies, you know, how he's also a, a dickhead or no, he would never be that disrespectful, but he's able to be disrespectful to these CIA agents. And that's pretty delicious to watch. Yeah, but you believe it. It's earned, though, John. Yeah. You know, uh, you know. I think the movie soft pedals the fact that he was part of the Nuremberg prosecution team a little bit. He, they mentioned it at the beginning, but they really sell up this aw shucks, Frank Capper like country lawyer thing. When I think he was a little sharper than that, you know. And you kind of forget how many, at least the books I've read, just how many um, attorneys there were uh, working on. Like there was an army of lawyers in Nuremberg during the trials. I mean, that was an all around the clock for years, legal process. They used just about anybody who would volunteer. It wasn't just Hartley Shawcross. It was like a lot of people and they went up, you know, dipping into private life afterwards and being guys like, um, James Donovan, you know, but yeah, uh, this Spielberg effort in particular was the strongest at the time. I think around a lot of other things that I took as being sort of middling efforts, I'd say Lincoln, Lincoln accepted. Um, he seemed to plug in more with this and 
what maybe it was a little bit of the wit and irony of that Coen Brothers script. And I don't know how much of the Coen Brothers script survived. They got credit, guilt credit, but I don't know what there is of what you see on the screen. Although it feels like you could imagine quite easily the Coen Brothers version of this. Um, just, you know, it would be a little less uh, earnest. It would be a little more ironic, perhaps. But um, yeah, the actors are great. And, you know, and, and with that respect, I would say this is the beginning of Spielberg's uh, partnership. At least I think it lasted two movies with Rylance. You know, Spielberg gets an actor or a creator like right now he's in the middle of his Tony Kushner thing where Kushner like wrote the last three or four movies. Uh, you know, that, it's a good partnership for them. And it's like with a couple of actors between he, he made this in the BFG with Rylance. And it's like, I think there's a vibe for a little while. They get into this environment with each other where they 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 kind of inspire each other. To I didn't see BFG, but I, I take Spielberg's recommendation for granted that he knows what he's doing and working with an actor of Rylance's ability. Rylance underplays this. He has sort of a wistful remove. He's a little outside his own circumstance. He kind of, let us say, are you worried? And he looks back at Donovan, would it help? And he says it like two times as if he's not quite, you know, he, he says, I'm not afraid of dying, you know? And it's like, well, I don't know who made this guy. I don't know where this guy came from. But Rylance gives him enough sort of sinew that you believe that this man is in the middle of all this stuff with the hollow nickel. And you just wonder, well, you know, I don't know how this guy got into New York, how he's living and painting in Brooklyn, but he's certainly an, an enigma. But he plays a very compelling enigma. But all the stuff running around in Germany, you know, Kaminsky shoots it great for Spielberg as you don't, you know, that that, that rich buttery quality of the light being a little desaturated, a little muted, a little gray when he gets over to the, the Iron Curtain. Um you know, it's a it's a hero story. And again, maybe, John, like you say, the idea that Spielberg has Donovan mouth off to both the, you know, the Stasi uh, and the, uh, you know, the, the DDR and the uh, Russian at security apparatus, as well as the CIA thinking, well, I know what's better of all of these groups. I can I can navigate my way through this and get everything we want. It's really successful on film. You know, it's it's a good way to take a story that was certainly more octopus-like with many more arms and make a simple movie out of it that works really well in a concise period of time. And, you know, what you were saying about Rylance's, you know, very understated performance, you know, I do agree. I, I like Rylance as a performer quite a bit, but there's a monologue he gives uh, while he's in prison to, to Jim Donovan about this neighbor friend of his father's who he witnessed being beaten and kept standing up and standing up and eventually says that's that's what you are you're the standing man and i thought that was such a window into rylance's character and and, and that pays off at the end when um this you know rudolph abel who could have really kind of fuck Jim Donovan over on the titular bridge, but he says, no, I'm, I'm going to wait here for confirmation from the other, you know, e exchange point. I'm going to side with this lawyer guy who, you know, I've only known for a couple of months. And I, I, I thought that the, both the movie and Ryan's performance, you know, uh, really pulled that off. And, um, you know, and just the, the movie is able to really make you sympathize with Jim Donovan by just how America and the people around him really turn on him for doing his job. Like he he takes defending the spy seriously and everyone from even his family to cops 
you know, are accusing him of betraying the ideals of America when he's, you know, the one who is, is upholding them. Even a judge says there's bigger things in the law here. And, and I think for a movie like this to, to be released in, um, you know, the mid 2010s, I think that was very timely, I think. Everyone being against him is what I want to talk about in this movie because this is my first time seeing it since it first came out. Returning to Spielberg movies from the past, I have this thought of like, is he just a guy who's telling me what to think? Is he like a simple filmmaker telling me what to think? And the first half of this movie, I'd say, suffers so horribly from that. I always say, um, avoid Spielberg movies with trial scenes because they all tend to be the same kind of moralizing, like, you know, the... uh, the, the glowing lead character who everyone is against, Lincoln, Amistad, The Post, they all have these characters who have in the film and the representation of that character the benefit of retrospect, you know, historical retrospect to say, hey, slavery is wrong. Hey, this guy had the right idea. You know, like he, we, the audience, side with Tom Hanks because we know he's the good guy. And what do we think about the other people? What do we think about... Uh, what do we think about this cop who looks like a big bully? What do we think about this judge played by a gross character actor with a double chin? What do we think about, uh, you know, the giant East German Stasi with a face like a skeleton or the unsupportive wife? All these people who are, you know, antagonist in this world of Spielberg to his one good man, this Tom Hanks character. And I kind of hate that. I kind of hate that this came out the year after A Most Wanted Man. And they're both movies about like, uh, a system that's ridiculous and a system that's broken and like this one perspective of it where it says, I'm I'm seeing like why it's not working. But Spielberg's attitude toward it is just, the first half of this movie is so forced. I kind of hate it. I kind of hate it. This is a great film in that it is well-made, well-acted, could not have been better, you know, utilized technically. Everything about it is, you know, expert. The perceptive that it like puts forward is something I have really hard time getting behind. It's much better in the second half. I think it's much better in the second half, mainly because it gets to be this, you know, kind of comedy of, uh, of manners with all these, you know, ridiculous bureaucratic types who he has to negotiate with. These scenes that were, you know, punched up by the Coens, that stuff works better. It's hard though for me to get past that first half where it's just like, Gee, you think Tom Hanks is right? I'm only telling you every chance I get <laughs> that he is the good guy you should be cheering for in this story, especially after watching all of these spy movies for for this uh, these two episodes and having so many complicated characters who we don't know if they're a good person. We really can't land on it. The Sidney Rileys, who are clear scumbags, but there's some reason that we still sympathize with them, sympathizing with Donald Sutherland's Nazi murderer in the rain, they are like, they have interesting perspectives of these people and these situations. And Bridge of Spies, to me, I can't give it a pass because I really hate that I don't get that complexity. That, you know, that maybe Spielberg was right. Maybe it's that simple look that he is very good at, but like, I have no use for it all. That was kind you of know, my the, thought watching it again. I am sort of self-conscious in that Spielberg is... A director or is an artist who often tells me what I want to think. You know, that 
and in very basic ways, like, you know, civil rights are important. Here is Tom Hanks telling us that civil rights are important. Here is Harrison Ford punching Nazis in the face. Here is a young boy per- pursuing his artistic well, dream to, to make Jones movies. movies. Those yeah. movies are beyond criticism. Uh, obviously. <laughs> um, but I can't help but be swept off my feet by them. Um, obviously, I, I don't love every Spielberg movie. I think for anybody who's been making movies as long as him, that's ridiculous. And 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 I I agree with you, John, that there's you know quite a bit of grandstanding, um, especially in movies with Spielberg movies with with trial scenes. But you know, for for me, um, I think this movie is able to pull it off. Not only with the technical skills that I think Spielberg has, has and has proven over and over again, but I, I think with with the the strength of the performances and and these characters, and and I think the ambition of trying to incorporate the very complicated story of like the, this U2 crash and this prisoner exchange and the, the building of the wall. There was an echo of the spy who came in from the cold with these, you know, people being shot as they're, they're trying to, to scale the wall. So this, this anticipation of the, the horror that, you know, the later decades of the, the cold war would, would wreak upon us. So, I, you know, I just think the the movie Pulls it off, and I I want there. I think there needs to be room for breach and a most wanted man. So it it pains me that those movies failed at the box office, um, because I think I think we deserve just as much of that voice as we do Spielberg's. Maybe I'm you know, and and there are a plethora of magical Spielberg moments in this movie. The long shot where the kids on the bike. And they're building the wall and he goes through the opening in the wall and the title comes up East Berlin. Perfect. That's perfect. You know, but maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. Was there a train that went past the wall in Berlin? Yeah, it was kind of confused. There was not. There was not. shot of him looking from the train to see these guys get shot. The whole point is they can't get across the wall. He's taking a train right past it. Yeah, east to west Berlin. Yeah, a Probably bit of like an oversight. The movie itself is contradictory at the end, where he tells the American pilot on the plane, "It doesn't matter what people think." And then the very last scene parallels that that shot where he's on the train in America, and everyone's reading about him on the paper. Except this time, they're proud of him, and now the people respect him on the train. Hey, it's a win. I thought it didn't matter, Spielberg. I thought it didn't matter what people. You see, no, no, I, I thought. I thought that illustrated the theme because these are people who were so easily swayed by one newspaper photo that they're going to look at him with awe. Like, who, who gives a shit? Um, so I, <laughs> it seems I, I thought, to matter to him. It seems to matter to um, him, I think, that moment. I, I think what his family thinks of him, I think, matters to him. But I think he's satisfied with what he he he's done. And the people in the train car are shallow dum-dums. Who are going to think what they're going to think? I don't know. I feel like the movie's like I spent two hours telling you this guy was right, and look, I've been proved. It's been proved. Yeah. Now these people like him. <laughs> you know, having said, the, the, when I saw this movie the first time, it was the sort of uh, last fresh uh, slap of wind in my face in Spielberg because I hadn't been happy with the last decade or so before this, and I thought, okay, you know what? If this is the last movie I really enjoy that he makes, I'm okay with that because this is a filmmaking ex- exercise. 
that technically works really well. It's got the chemistry of him and his lead actor. And, you know, I mean, it's and Kaminsky's photography looks great. The thing is, in light of seeing the Fablemans, which I really didn't expect to get out of the Fablemans, what I did, you know, I didn't know he had that in him to make a sort of fresh movie that winds up doing something I would I would call it intimate as sort of a Spielberg intimacy, which you only see it a few times in his career. And most of them were when he was younger and couldn't quite turn off the valve a little bit. He said more about himself when he was younger, when he's making Sugarland Express, even in, even in a movie like Sugarland Express. I think it says a lot about the way he regards kind of regular backwoods people, um, sort of a, a look at the hoi polloi. Um, and even Roy Neary to some degree, you know, those are things that are intimate, uh, color purple Schindler's list, maybe the early uh, apex of, of him making intimate films, but the sort of newness and the way he decides to, you know, get Kushner to cut close to the bone when making the Fablemans, it, it changes my gauge of this movie where it's like, I still enjoy the hell out of it, but I think I understand that this is more like the post. This is a movie that really has, it's a very formal movie. It lacks a lot of intimacy. It's not a personal experience for Spielberg in so much as compared to some other movies where I think he, this is something whipped out of his life. And that's the thing about Spielberg. You know, when you go back and watch that HBO documentary from a couple of years back, Spielberg says, he says, I don't want to look the gift horse of my inspiration in its mouth. So he never did scratch very deeply. He never really questioned where did the stuff come from? But I mean, he's an artist. He can't help but bleed into the art. You just have to just, you have just to see, well, what is he saying without knowing it? And which movies is he putting it in? And which projects mean more to him? You know, and ultimately, I don't think that this will be known. It was a good commercial success for him, but I don't think it'll be one of his great movies in the end. I think, you know, he may yet still make more movies like The Fablemans, which, you know, put something like this lower in the sedimentary fossil layer. All right. Did you guys end up watching the Thomas Alfredson version of Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy that came out in 2011? Watching this so soon after the BBC version, I, I've, uh, you know, I'm, I think it's a great accomplishment, you know, compressing all that narrative, all that plot in, into a two, a little over two hour movie. Um, and just Gary Oldman knocks it out of the park uh, in an incredibly challenging and taxing role. And this is another like, holy shit, <laughs> what a cast. Um, Mark Strong, Stephen Graham. Tom Hardy, Colin Firth, just just so many heavy hitters in here. Um, you know, you you, you even get a, a a great moment where Benedict Cumberbatch like attacks Tom Hardy, and you could see Tom Hardy sort of like giggle at the ridiculousness of it. Um, and yet it's it, it's just like everything works in this thing. Um, I think the the one aspect that maybe doesn't work in comparison to the BBC version is that we don't get the scene with Carla. Instead, we have Gary Oldman narrate what happened with Carla. And I think that diffuse and sort of like tell the audience that, oh, this is me at my weakest moment when I reveal too much of myself to my opponent. And for the character to just tell the audience that by talking too much, he revealed too much his opponent in a monologue. I think that sort of like undercuts the whole idea of, of that. But everything else, I think, works. You know, everybody playing against each other, the the internecine conflicts be between these like middle aged British guys not trusting each other, not sharing intelligence, valuing their own pet projects over 
national security. I think it it gets across that brilliantly. Um, like what a goddamn treat. Yeah, uh, this movie I think is pretty airtight. You know, other than the fact that maybe you see it coming with um, Colin Firth because Colin Firth is at this stage in his career where it's like seeing um, Stellan Skarsgård. It's like you're not the good guy. I get it. And Colin Firth showing up in a movie a little bit in a showy role is kind of like, I mean, if it's if it's a composite of Kim Philby, he's exactly the guy I would expect to play a composite of Kim Philby in real life. But having just watched the um, you know, the BBC adaptation with Guinness. I would say that, look, this is a better made movie. Tomas Alfredson is a great director. I think he, it, it is a work of a minor miracle. They managed to squeeze all that stuff in, have it be comprehensible and work with all these great A-listers and great, and great, you know, Mark Strong shows up in a, in a place here and there. Um, Kieran Hines is in it. I mean, it is a real red meat murderer's row of actors, guys who were born to do Le Carre. The thing about the, um, was it John Irvin did the miniseries back in, in 70, 78, 79. That miniseries, granted, it had a lot of diversions, like hanging out at a soccer field for a long time while the freaking, um, uh, what, what was a uh, Predo, Predo sort of licks his wounds in, in, in a whole episode. And it's like, okay, I guess we can spend one out of seven episodes doing this. I mean, it seems like there's a lot to do, but the uh, miniseries really uh, had a lot of that English class system hidebound clubbiness because every time you turn around alec uh alec guinness is having dinner in a club with some you know rough to high-necked uh, englishman who's very prep school and all these guys were backslappers you know they all came out of sandhurst and eton and cambridge and whatnot and this feels like it you know because it's made in our current epoch it really tries to push the britishness away a little bit in the way that the old one was living in a fact that everybody knew this was, you can't, this is rarefied air. These guys came out of private schools. They were rich people for the begin with. And it was a whole class system that normal people didn't belong into. Whereas this movie seems like it wanted to make it more democratic where it's more about, it's a matter of life and death. And that's why it works more. It's it, it, why it works better as a film. And I would say, I, I mean, I don't know if it's sacrilegious. I really love Alec Guinness, but I mean, Ar Alec Guinness, the entire time he's doing it, I can't help but hear Obi-Wan Kenobi's voice saying, I was worse, I was wrong. And, you know, Gary Oldman is beginning this sort of like A-list Oscar ascent doing this and then putting on all that fucking makeup to do Churchill in a few years after that. But he, you know, between this and Jim Gordon, it was a pretty good turn of the decade for him. I think he had a pretty good run of movies where he played these real benign figures that had a lot of complexity to them. Yeah, and and, and Alfredson is just, I think he's, he's got the goods. He's a really good director. Yeah, you know, Alfredson, um, he has a baffling career for me because, you know, he did this right after Let the Right One In, which is an extraordinary horror film, one of the best horror films of the decade. And then he, he follows... Tinker Taylor with the snowman. snowman. Yeah. Like yeah. just one of the all time disasters as far as like productions go. So I don't know what's like, I don't know what happened on that film. And I think it's really like tragic, you know, because he's clearly a capable filmmaker. You know, he's got an incredible eye for storytelling uh, for, for cinema. He, he's a legit artist. And so I don't know what happened there. Um, wow. Uh, <laughs> um and i think for for people of my age cohort i think we really fell in love with gary oldman and you know the professional and the fifth element and you know looking back for things like sid and nancy and so for him to then shut all that down 
um, and be so quiet and, and do the thing that Guinness did, you know, you know, he showed the power of listening in, in, in Spycraft. I think it it's, you know, one of the pinnacles of his career in a movie with all in a career with a lot of peaks and, and so for him to be able to stand out in, in such a cast as well is, you know, a, a, a real accomplishment. And also, you know, Smiley's also a bit of a bastard. You know, he he's lying to people. He tells um uh he tells Ricky Tar that, oh yeah, we're gonna we're gonna rescue Arena. Sure, sure, buddy, and knowing all the while that she's dead. Um and yeah, it, it gets across La Carre's grim spy world just so well. You know, I had that exact same thought of like Oldman doing the monologue about meeting Carla rather than showing it uh, as being <laughs> weirdly counterintuitive to what that whole scene is meant to represent. But also how the movie clearly has reverence for the miniseries and takes all of those big moments from the story, Ricky Tar in Istanbul, Prido taking on the, uh, the piggy from Lord of the Flies kid under his wing, uh, Gilliam checking his bag when he goes to the archives, Smiley interviewing Connie Sachs. Great performance, by the way, by Kathy Burke. It uh, seems like they really had a, how are we going to make this scene our own? Like, how are we not going to imitate the miniseries and do something different? And part of that, of course, also had to do with like the international appeal as, as Bill spoke to. But I saw this, you know, originally in the theater as well. And this is the first time I saw it right after watching the miniseries. So you can't help but have those comparisons. I think I can easily say Guinness is incredible. Oldman is incredible. Yeah. You know, both of their smileys are fantastic. Obi-Wan be damned. But uh, I, it, for me, it was most interesting to watch it as a movie. I think it's great. I really do think it's great. Um, and watch what it decides not to do and what not to do compared to the original material. Um, and I guess you guys have already hit on that, how it was, you know, condensed from that. So, you know, different way of watching it. I'm glad I revisited it. And I, I yeah. did watch this with uh, my girlfriend who had not seen the, the miniseries and had not read the book and she, she was not confused. So mm -hmm. I, I wanted to watch it with somebody who had no knowledge of the material before and to see if they could, they could follow it. And they, and they could. So. Yeah. I think it's important actually, because this movie, you know, when it was in the theater and, and, you know, the reviews were knocking it for this sort of, um, it was assuming that a great deal of the audience would be, not be able to penetrate it. And I just felt like, uh, okay, I know that's the lead going in. I watched the movie. I'm like, just watch the fucking movie. Pay attention. Honestly, it's it's not. I mean, for a film that's over two hours, it's like it does its job pretty efficiently. It cuts out a lot of stuff, and it, you know, it, you're making a movie. Honestly, this isn't that hard. So it's it's as far as Lacare goes. I know that there's a snowball, a snowstorm of a lot of facts and a lot of names and a lot of circumstances. But I mean, there's a feeling that goes through this that you get what it's supposed to be about. I really don't think it's hard to understand. Uh, before we leave this decade, I just wanted to give a recommendation for something that I didn't even suggest it because it's it's only available on AMC Plus. Um, so, but if you can if you can see it, uh, the 2018 version of Little Drummer Girl. Um, it's directed all by Park Chen Wok. It stars Florence Pugh and Alexander Skarsgård, and it I think it really gets across the John Le Carre voice extraordinarily well. And Florence Pugh plays um, a young woman who's sort of roped in to spy for Israel uh, to sort of infiltrate the Palestinian uh, terrorist apparatus. And it's 
it gets more and more harrowing as the episodes go on and you just feel more and more hopeless as to like what are we even doing with like spying on terrorists like we're just making the whole situation worse and it's it might be my favorite thing Park chan Wook's done it's pretty great um and so the highly recommended especially now that you know Florence Pugh's star is continues to ascend I think uh people should should seek that out well it's interesting have you seen the George Roy Hill movie I I have not um I I probably should have considering we're watching all these spy movies but I, I just didn't get around to it it's a lot I that's one I considered watching for the 80s and was really interested to check out but they're just there's a lot of movies. Yeah, you can only yeah, see so yeah, many. Yeah, Unfortunately, yeah. I have to circle back around to it, but I, and I definitely would like to see the park uh, chain Wu as well. Uh, but we're going to follow Colin first into the current decade, the 2020s, because I want to talk about all our alternate movie first, mainly because I don't want to end on it. But uh, it's an early decade. It's hard to sell. You know what? You know the kind of flavor of spy movies is going to be if they are still going to make spy movies the way they had, or maybe they're going to. Uh, kind of do that little drummer girl kind of model of doing more like miniseries and television stuff rather than big films because it seems right now like the flavor is uh, hitting the past hard you know like doing stuff from World War II doing period films not really reflective of anything I think that's happening right now I think it's a obviously it's a confusing time for many and it's you know kind of going to be interesting to see what artwork kind of emerges from this decade because now I would say, based on what we've seen from spy movies, it's kind of like up in the air. I really don't know what to expect. But anyway, the one I wanted to start with as our alternate pick is Operation Mincemeat by John Madden from uh, 2021. Uh, we talked in the first episode a little bit about uh, The Man Who Never Was, because this is that was a story about Operation Mincemeat from World War II, and this is a, a recent retelling of it, seemingly because they found out about Ian Fleming's involvement <laughs> And wanted to yeah. like portray him as a character, which doesn't happen in the uh, the man who never was. Uh, Bill, did you watch this one? Yeah, certainly. Um, I was excited to watch it, and I, you know, I come away from it so torn because I thought the parts of tradecraft were so compelling, and but the problem was is that fucking John Madden cannot help himself from being sometimes this like you know Elizabethan. Um, dramaturg doing this this lip lip biting uh melodrama sometimes it feels like i'm watching a tom hardy at no the the writer tom hardy not the actor tom hardy like like i'm watching jude the obscure or something like that and i mean i you know this guy hasn't necessarily ruined movies because obviously he's a director knows what he's doing but it's like shakespeare and love was just so filled with um these curlicues of english romanticism and I thought, okay, we're, we're going to watch him do this this corpse movie. We're going to watch him dress up a dead body, throw it in the sea off of Spain, and let's see what happens if you can make the make the Germans think that the invasion is going to come through Greece. It's like, hey, I'm on board. That's exactly what this should be. And you know, this movie moves at a real clip as they're shaking down all the things that could go wrong of trying to get the permission. I mean, the procedure stuff was great. Trying to find the correct cadaver, you know, and these, these bodies just look gnarlier and gnarlier as they're pulling them out of the morgue and just thinking, we don't have much time before this guy really turns. He's going to bloat and turn gray in like a, a week or so. We got to do this soon. But then there's just so much real estate spent with Kelly McDonald and Firth as this, this sort of will they or won't they never was, uh, I don't care. I just don't care. And I don't know why Madden thought we would. It's like the movie sets up 
by shipping Matt, uh, uh, Colin Firth's wife out to the States to keep her safe. And so he's on the board. You get to have this delicious English tension over, well, it's forbidden, but we, you know, the stakes are high. We truly love each other. And I'm, I'm not in any way, shape, or form derogating Kelly McDonald. I like when she shows up on film. She gives us such a heft and a sturdiness to things. But I just thought that there was so much chaff with that bullshit where it's like, do you, is Operation Mincemeat about the relationship or is it about this plan? Because there's such an aversion sometimes to get to brass tacks with John Madden that I wonder if he, if he was really clear in what kind of movie he wanted to make. Yeah, you know, I, I do feel that Kelly McDonald's is really wasted. I think she could be such a compelling presence on screen when the, the script is there, you know, but for me, this movie just felt like such Netflix content to me be, because like the, the device, which I actually like, um, but it just hammered too much is that these characters, um, in, including Angus McFadden's sort of um, uh, internal intelligence office worker, when they're creating the identity of the body, they're going to wash up on to Spain's shore to try and fool the Russians. They're sort of... It, injecting this person with all their own secret desires their their failings that their their fantasies and and their own psychic troubles so they're basically telling the audience what they're actually thinking every time that scene happens and it happens a lot in addition to that there's ian fleming's narration so the audience is constantly being told what to think, which, I okay, maybe I'm a hypocrite for criticizing the movie for doing this after just praising Bridge of Spies. <laughs> Forgive me. But it just it just felt like, all right, this is a movie where if you were on your phone the entire time, you would still know what was going on. You need to take a 10-minute break to to wash the dishes. You're Just keep it playing. You're, you're, you're going to be fine. This So it just, oh, and, and when you come back, handsome people in handsome uniforms are sitting in well-lit rooms you know, talking wistfully to each other as they look each other in the eyes. And so it's it's comforting Netflix content. And I think it's it was a waste of of a really great cast and a really fascinating story. And so it it just it just didn't hit me the way that I, I wanted to be hit, unfortunately. Well maybe we should have ended on this one because we are absolutely <laughs> unanimous in our feelings on it. <laughs> uh I wanted to include it because well because we didn't have too many options to start with, but also because, you know, uh, the man uh, who never was, you know, I thought it would be interesting to watch both those movies and kind of compare them. And I'm glad I did because that movie, uh, Ronald Nam's movie, is a film that knows it's an interesting story and does not get in the way of it. It tells that story. It has all the interesting aspects of it. It adds a little spicy drama, but it never feels like, you know, it's uh, trying to like grab it and make it its own thing. It really lets the story kind of unfold the way it naturally would. Comparing it to this, which I think you summed it up perfectly by saying handsome men in handsome uniforms, that is literally what this movie is most interested in is aesthetic. And I knew uh, right away that I was in trouble when I saw, you know, people from like the Sherlock uh, TV show. And I was like, oh, no, I don't think it's the same creative team who worked on that who did this, but it has the same feeling of like, oh, we love spy movies and we want to do our own version of a spy movie. It's like not really coming to it with a really fresh idea or angle it's just like we want to have our own movie with handsome guys and handsome uniforms we want to make our own 39 steps we want to make our own hitchcock kind of film and that's all it feels like is just it's leaden with effort you know as opposed to 
getting out of the way and telling this interesting story. I kind of feel like if I didn't know about Operation Mincemeat, uh, the real life thing before this, I would kind of be lost and not really understand what was interesting about it based on seeing this movie alone. It fails to do what Man Who Never Was uh, did effortlessly. So I'm glad, guys, that you feel the same way because, yeah, it's uh, it's not great. Content, yeah, that's it's not too harsh in my opinion. <laughs> we're going to get that movie out of the way. We're going to end with Kiyoshi Kurosawa's 2020 film Wife of the Spy. It's set in 1940. It's about a Japanese couple living in Kobe where the husband, whose name is Yusaku, runs an import-export business and affords his wife, uh, Satoko, a life of relative leisure, very much in the Western style. She begins to suspect that he's up to something, which turns out to involve evidence of inhuman Japanese biological experiments, which he learned about during a business trip to Manchuria that he intends to expose. And although she initially condemns what he's doing, she finally understands what he's doing and agrees to help him smuggle evidence out of the country. I, you know, I, I um, was amazed that... Um... By the way, this is the only Kurosawa movie I have seen. I know I knew people said immediately, you got to see The Cure. The Cure is supposed to be like this bang-up vampire movie. I got I to get back cure, in there. Not The yeah. Cure. You want to go and watch okay. Robert Smith, you know, trudge up on stage. <laughs> Sorry. With his makeup melting all over his fat face. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Cure. <laughs> Granted. Um, the, 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 the tension between the low-budget sort of BBC look of this, where it is shot interiors... And you know, well decorated sets, um, conjuring you know early early forties um, you know interiors with furniture and a lot of a lot of costumes and stuff like that makes it look one thing, and I think it's actually a lot more brutal than that. Uh, but it had the, the camera style, the photography, and the way it, it you know again it doesn't have the budget to go outside and shoot a lot of things. It's mostly done interiors. So it, it has the restrained look of something that you would see out of England, you know, circa mid 80s or something like that. But I think that it it charges a lot stronger with the tension between the husband and wife, you know, especially the fact that it's commenting on the rape of Manchuria and war crimes and things like that. And I like the switcheroo that, you know, she goes from it really seems for a while like, well, this is grounds for divorce because she just her husband's inscrutable. Uh, he, she, she just can't get through to him, but then she, you know, he's trying to protect her from knowing what he knows. And then once she knows, she becomes a convert. She becomes a zealot for this sort of thing. It's like, well, our country is wrong. And I don't know. I've seen very little fiction out of Japan in terms of how hard it was to live inside of Japan during wartime. We see a lot of it projected from, you know, imputed from without, but this was the idea of it's like, well, it was becoming a locked up ironclad security state. You're going to watch more it, Japanese films, my friend. <laughs> It's true. No, it's true. Especially for a lot of that in Japanese. I mean, the the is that take place after you know anything that's they're not commenting on Japan during the war necessarily. Even even the Ozus I've seen seem to want to get past it really quickly and discuss something else. But this is like a whole different mindset of you know paranoia and 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 the idea that everybody was just more or less beholden to the to, to Hirohito and that. You really can't question. There's no room for dissidence or anything like that. So it made me think. It's like, oh, you really are fucked if you're in this guy's position. Like, what do you do? You know, if you realize that this is a horror, if you were somebody who realizes your state is a war criminal, you know, that you're perpetrating these acts of inhumanity, 
Uh, and those are just the ones that he knew about. You know, I mean, Manchuria was almost as bad as it got, but there were horrible things happening all across the battlefield. Um, yeah, the actors were great. Um, the, the I know, John, I posted this on social media at the time. The one scene where those two English language actors show up in the freighter and they do such laughably bad line readings. Uh, and I assume these are English actors, Anglophone actors who camp out in Japan and play English people whenever you need them. There must be a call for like African American or, or Afro English actors to hang out and play black people because there aren't a lot of black people to, for these roles in Japan in Tokyo, and so these people show up and they play you know this sort of English speaker du jour. They're not always the best actors. That was a little weird to get around, but I mean, it the ending of it when she's sort of in the loony bin and steps out. It reminded me of like Grave of Fireflies. You know, there's something so horrifying from the firebombing. And I'm like, oh, for a movie that had such a reserved interior look that has this, um, you know, almost like par the parlors of the war effort, the focus gets really big for one shot to show you, oh, everything, this is scorched earth. Everything is just laid to waste. It's ashes. This is the horror that you see in something like Grave of Fireflies. And it's like, you'll never be the same again. And everyone's life was ruined. And it's like, Jesus, way to end on a fucking downer. That's a very Kiyoshi Kurosawa thing, by the way. The character, yeah. emotionally isolated character walks out into an apocalypse, basically. Like the world ending, such as their complete desolation and isolation that's a very Kurosawa thing you know maybe it just um because of the namesakes of the directors but this did make me uh think of Akira Kurosawa's No Regrets for Our Youth and the struggle of those characters um because that movie takes place in the 1930s in Japan and the sort of ramping up of of the the fascist tendencies of that government and people who were more um vocally opposed to what the government was doing and the consequences uh, for what that opposition would be. Whereas, you know, a wife of a spy is very much occupied with um, covert efforts to, to subvert uh, Japanese war crimes and, and also what they're doing at home. And what I also appreciate is how it gets across the real naivete, naivete of these spy characters because they're so horrified by what Japan is doing in Manchuria that they think that, oh, all we have to do is tell the people what our government is doing and they'll realize how, how wrong it, it is and the, their world, we will be exonerated. And that's just not how it happened. And I think as, you know, we've seen in America, um, we... You know, this country can't even reckon with its history of, of slavery or, or genocide of Native Americans. You know, there's legal battles of, over whether we can even teach it in, in schools. And so I think for um, this film to really confront Japan's inability to confront it, its own sins by, you know, focusing uh, through this lens of a World War II spy film, I, I think is really compelling. Um, and I think in contrast to... Um, Operation Mincemeat, I think this is a successful execution of a imitation of a style. So like Bill said, very reminiscent of like BBC wardroom dramas. I think the uh, Kurosawa's technique of these characters donning the disguise of Western aff affluence, um, I think makes th their own makes their naivety believable, but also th their bafflement at what their country is becoming. 
um, because, you know, there's this third character who is clearly in love with the titular wife and he becomes more and more distant and, you know, warns this couple like there is a reckoning coming. You need to be careful with who you associate with and what you do with your life. You need to start dressing like a traditional Japanese couple or else, you know, you're going to face consequences. And they, they, they don't listen. They can't hear him. Um, and I think that, that naivete is maybe the only reason why they're able to recognize the horror that their own government is, you know, inflicting upon Manchuria. And I think it's even tragic that it, it seems like they only think that this is the only thing Japan was doing that was terrible at, at the time when it would, uh, they were doing, you know, a panoply of war crimes during the late 30s and 40s. And so, yeah, I was... You know, there it just gave me so much to chew on by what is ostensibly, you know, a, a um, you know, a BBC style, um, you know, domestic drama, but it also it encompasses so much in the performances and in, in the writing and in the filmmaking. Well, I'm glad you brought up Akira Kurosawa because he was the greatest director of all time, and also, you know, someone who was constantly criticized for his westernization, you know, the fact that the, his western style of filmmaking, that he's not making traditional Japanese movies, you know, that he's not representing his country the way that he would be proper for him to do. Uh, I think that that the fact that this couple has this western style in the film and have all these western, you know, uh, affiliations and that they are scrutinized for it is a really interesting take on what was what priorities were for people in wartime you know that they you know suddenly they say you don't get it you know not being a traditional japanese couple means that you're anti-japanese that you know you are like against not only your country but like everything that we're trying to do like our entire war effort you're in contrast against that i think you know being blind to that really is an interesting way to look at this couple i think also it's interesting as sort of a flip coin to the bridge of spies question of you know the one noble man who will like stick out his neck and do the right thing this really questions do you stick out your neck do you go and you do do the right thing do you sacrifice you're fine with sacrificing your own happiness and prosperity for the good of the world but what about did you stop and think what you're doing to the woman you love that she is going to be implicated in this too that you are making this decision not only for yourself, but for this person who trusts you, you know, to, to take care of her and to um, be there and support her. And it's a devastating kind of drama by the end, you know, when they're ultimately separated because he has made this decision for both of them. That's why the movie's called The Wife of the Spy, because it really wants to examine what happens to people who aren't the spy, which, you know, is something that you don't get too often in films. Um, I think, you know, the equivalent maybe would be like the Claire Bloom character from A Spy Who Came in the Cold, and we see what that does to her. And I think, you know, that's a really compassionate and empathetic kind of take on this material, that he's not necessarily saying, this guy who's discovered this and is willing to make this sacrifice is a great guy. He's saying, is he a great guy? Because he's kind of ruining everybody's life. And the character, the nephew character, who's, you know, who... Uh, captures the footage with him and is arrested seeing the that character uh morally uh, mentally collapse throughout the thing you know and become more and more paranoid and terrified and ultimately you know uh, picked up 
captured is a symbol of that you know is we see what happens to a character who maybe didn't sign on to this necessarily on the one on the one note it's interesting story about not being patriotic patriotic enough during like wartime and on the other it's about you know where are your actions which are unquestionably noble and the right thing to do the right thing for like the people around you it's a story that isn't about you know heroism versus cowardice it's a story that's about implication of you know of people who uh, necessarily wouldn't necessarily be the heroes of these films so i think kurosawa does a fantastic job kind of with that level of empathy which you don't see very often in spy films you know i really love the moment when the 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 couple is confronted with the fingernails of their nephew who was tortured you know because of this spy operation that they ensnared him in yeah it's yeah it is for the right reasons but who else are you willing to to sacrifice for you know your own feeling of moral superiority and i think it, it is a little bit of an ego trip for the husband who's able to go off in this adventure and you know have this this secret knowledge that um, other people don't have because he is a, a bit of a performer and i mean i mean you know they make movies that's part of their relationship and so he likes to take on these roles of of the hero and so it's it's not entirely a moral quest for him i think he's somebody who wants to impress his wife um or or wants to impress himself um, wants to, to feel superior to others, and and I think that is ultimately what what dooms this this couple. Even even if they are doing the right thing for partly a lot of the right reasons. I, I think I really wanted to see the version. I, I in my head, it's like when she sealed into the um, banana crate on board that that fr- freighter. I really thought that this could go somewhere very different. I thought I did not want what happened to happen, you know, to hear the footsteps come back down the gangplank and the chute and have the thing pried open. I was like, tell me that there's going to be another, another outcome to this. And it's the worst possible, you know, the worst thing that could happen to everybody happens to everybody. And, you know, I think it's, it actually sets up this idea during the movie that it's like, is it possible they could get away with this? Can the right man do the, can the can an average man do the right thing and somehow prosper in the middle of all of it? And instead, it just it's like no, it's it is the destruction of everything. You know, it it is a firebombing. It just took place inside people's lives in so much as it did the cities and the and the buildings and the structures as well. No one gets out alive, and it's almost like what happens to her is almost more perverse than if she just died outright earlier, just living her life out in a loony bin and then stepping out into an ashen apocalypse. You know, I think the title is so evocative of so so many of the movies that we've talked about, just the the destruction that spying leaves in its wake. It's bad for people. It's it's bad for governments. Um, you know, the, there's just so many lives that have been broken that we've seen uh, across all the films that we've talked about, you know, um, except except Fritz Lang spies. Uh, which turns out pretty good for the good guys. Um, you know, I, I think the ending of this film, I think, is a perfect capper to a lot of the the themes and the films and the stories that we've looked at. It's just like this utter wasteland of humanity that, you know, governments have sort of engineered through these, you know, through international spycraft and also somehow uh, 
series of very compelling films. John, I, I like the um, the sort of fable we were told as kids, especially growing up in New York, how, you know, the spying was essential to fighting the British during the revolution, you know, and this, this the, the um, Revolutionary Army was in Connecticut and Long Island and New York was, um, um, I think, was uh, held by the British. And so, you know, spies would literally row across the Long Island Sound and it was a virtuous spot. Like that was how you got troop movements. That's how you got quantities. That's how you got which personnel was there, which command structure. Uh, I'm sure it was a lot more complicated than that. But it's like the, you know, the, the story we're told about Nathan Hale, who, while with the rope around his neck, says, I only regret I have but one life to live for my country. It makes it seem that, you know, spying may be this dirty game, but there's actually a use for it. It's actually outright necessary. Sometimes it can only be through spying that these things are done. Like it's it's an asymmetrical war and you need the soft power of fingertips and uh, people scuttling through the edges to win these, you know, win these battles. You know, people have to do amoral or gray area things to be heroes and things like that. I, I believe that there's a use for it and I believe that it's possible. I, I believe that it's absolutely necessary as well, but it, it seems like when behemoths like the FBI and the CIA can't communicate to say, hey, Iraq doesn't have weapons of mass destruction. Uh, it's like, like, what the fuck are we doing? <laughs> yeah, at the end of the day, there are no heroes in the spy game, right? You're not a you're not a woman. You're not Japanese. You're the wife of the spy. That's what you've been turned into. Yeah. Uh, it's already these anonymous titles, you know, that turn a person into an entity into a thing i think is you know kind of at the moral crux of a lot of these films guys we did it <laughs> we got all the way through 100 years with the spy films this has been an absolute blast for me I, I before we let's let's do the same thing we did at the end of the last episode why don't you guys tell me of this this um half of the deck of the um century what do you think of what was your favorite film? Which one was your least favorite film? Which one was like the biggest surprise for you? Uh, John, you want to go first? Sure. Um, I, I can't pick a favorite film. I'm, I'm just so happy that I got to experience um, like Bridge of Spies again, along with Breach or Wife of a Spy that, that these, you know, competing styles and views on the subject matter can exist at the same time and so it was it was great to revisit breach um you know especially for the catholic angle that that movie has uh so you know just uh, there's just so many ideas and and aesthetics and filmmaking perspectives that all these different um movies have and it was just a really enlightening experience to get to watch all, all of them in in such uh you know, a brief succession. So I really appreciate being able to do that with you guys. You know, I think it's it's evident from what I said that Demon Lover uh, didn't really survive the Bill Scurry uh, whirring blade of criticism. But I, I actually, you know what? My favorite might have been one we didn't talk about. I really like Hopscotch. There's, you oh know, God. I mean, that is just a fucking goblin of a movie, man. The, the, the Wally, Wally Matthau as this, it's such a, is, is it a comedy? Is it a drama? Is it just like, what is the deal with that movie? It occupies all these spaces at once. It's like, what if Charlie Varick just had a better day in life and he was a more qualified guy, but he took all that piss and vinegar and skill and put it somewhere else. It's like watching Matha just send those packages around the world from different places and watching him get along with Glenda Jackson and, and fucking Ned Beatty is his, his, his nemesis. It's, it's a delicious movie. I mean, I don't think nearly enough people know about Hopscotch, but it's fucking great. 
Um, I don't think any other spy movie has been made me giggle with glee more than Hopscotch has. Well, you know, Gotcha really took my surprise because I really lowballed it. I thought it was going to be, you know, like Jim Cotta or there's a couple of those weird movies that like with was it Mitch Gaylord? I think it was in Jim Cotta. It's like some of those things I just really the name that doesn't really quite tell you what's going on. But but Canoe surprised me with a little more under the hood than I thought I was going to get. Um that was pretty sharp. But I think I think Breach, just because, you know, um, I wouldn't have watched it otherwise. Chris Cooper aside, I just think I would have ignored it for some reason, maybe because of the Ryan Philippiness of it. But Breach is kind of an all-star team pick. Just, you know, if you want to watch actor the Actors Hall of Fame, it's like Chris Cooper is going to be up there in the end for the character guys who can also be lead actors, leading men, that sort of thing. John, was there a surprising one for you of the first watches from this slate? Um, yeah, A Wife of a Spy, I think. Yeah, because I have not seen any other uh, Kurosawa films, and and this one was just not something I was expecting uh, at all, and it, it really sort of um, it really grabbed a hold of my brain uh, while I was watching. Because usually, uh, you know, it does have a very digital film sheen to it, and that tends to to put me off, but it I think it, it totally works for, for this film, so I, I really appreciate being able to, to get to watch that. That's great. Yeah, guys, definitely check out more Kiyoshi Kurosawa. He's one of the best filmmakers working today. I'm a huge, huge fan of his work. Uh, and Wife, Life of the Spy is even one I wouldn't put in the top echelon of his work. Ooh, wow. Uh, oh, yeah. Even though I think it's great. Uh, he's made some really, really phenomenal films. And he is just a, a great uh, searcher, like a great director who clearly goes out to find something and usually comes up with something really interesting with his work. Um, my least favorite was Operation Mincemeat. I didn't make that clear. Uh, Netflix content, 100% agree. I loved revisiting Long Kiss Goodnight. I can't say enough how much I love this movie. I watched it. Uh, John and I talked about uh, Victor Reese uh, recently on a podcast, and I watched Spirit of the Beehive and Long Kiss Goodnight within a day of each other. And it's nice. I love watching two great films that are great for 100% opposite reasons. That's that's safe to say, yes. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's what I love about the the pink smoke because that's you guys make make room for Spirit of the Beehive and the Long Kiss Goodnight, so that's uh, fantastic. There's plenty of room for both. Absolutely, yes, absolutely, absolutely. And uh, biggest surprise was Austin Weekend. No, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and let you guys uh, tell everyone where to find you again because I'm gonna sit here. I'm feeling a little guilty about that Robert Smith remark. Honestly, what did the cure ever do to me? <laughs> I, that was that was uncalled for. It's like that was mean. Uh, I am uh, on Twitter at William Scurry, and I'm also on Twitter. My podcast is uh, I Don't Get It, which is at uh, Noah and Bill's show. Noah and Bill Don't Get It. No, Noah and Bill's show. That's what it is. Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm losing my mind here. Yeah, we talk about pop culture things week after week as old men uh, kicking the tires on phenomena to see if they're somehow interesting to people who aren't young children. Uh, but mostly I'm on Twitter, Instagram, social media, sounding off about movies, putting clips up. Uh, I'm also I frequently am a guest on Wrong Reel, which I'm sure everybody knows that by now. So I'll see you guys out there in the uh, on the ball field. Yeah, um, I'm John Arminio. You can find me at Quasar Sniffer on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I am currently doing the Popcorn Eschaton podcast project where Scott Thurow and I of Zebras in America tackle spiritual and leftist movies or movies from a spiritual and leftist perspective. We the most recent one released as of this recording is the Thirteenth Warrior, where my brother was a guest on. Uh, that was a great time, 
And the next one we're going to record is going to be a pairing of Martin Scorsese's Silence with Black Narcissus. So this is a movie where we can, where we have also a wide berth of, of possible films we're, we're going to be discussing. So it's it's uh, been great to talk with Scott about the, these su subjects and uh, a real privilege to be on the Zebras in America feed. What a goddamn honor that has been. So, uh, so yeah, check it out. I don't know, John. Is Scorsese even a fan of Palin Pressburger? I don't think he's mm. been on the record about that. <laughs> Wait, I thought Black Narcissus was... I thought that was a Rodney Ray Moore movie. Am I wrong? <laughs> <laughs> a prequel to Black Dynamite. Sorry, Rudy Ray Moore. Rudy, Rudy Ray, Moore. Ray Moore. I got that right. Yeah, you got, you got my point. Guys, thanks again. This has been a really fantastic journey. I really enjoyed it, and I'm looking forward to doing... If you branch off mini episodes with you guys about the same topic and uh, John and I are going to be doing a, a bond commentary soon. A lot of cool Ooh. stuff coming up. Uh, if you missed somehow the first half of this, go back and listen to it. It's uh, it's uh, been some we talked about a lot of movies. That's for sure. <laughs> All right. Thanks again, guys.